This is Tim Benal of BenalofAmerica.com with another edition of BOE Audio Season 4 and the exciting conclusion to the Rocks Trilogy. There really isn't much for me to say here at the beginning of the show. You know the rundown. Our guest is the amazing Bruce Rocks here to conclude our three-part interview discussing his fantastic book, Hollywood vs. the Aliens. So let me just give you a quick thumbnail look at what we're going to be talking about here in this concluding installment of the Rocks Trilogy, subtitled The Postscript. For starters, we're going to be discussing the UFO and ET films of the Reagan, Bush Sr., and Clinton years, and then we're going to wrap up the whole discussion on Hollywood vs. the Aliens by talking about the big picture implications of a UFO education program, if you will, and why entertainment is the perfect medium for such a project. For those folks who want to know more about Bruce Rocks, we're definitely going to smash the fourth wall here. We're going to hear what's been going on with Bruce these last nine years, what he may be working on now, and his thoughts on the world of ufology today. From there, we're going to get Bruce's perspective on how things have shaped up since the book came out, and what he thinks of a number of films and TV shows from 1997 to 2009. Let me list just a few of them for you. Capricorn 1. E.T., Red Dawn, Men in Black, Independence Day, Starship Troopers, Contact, Mission to Mars, Battlefield Earth, Ghosts of Mars, Signs, Stargate SG-1, Lost, Steven Spielberg's Taken miniseries, plus, of course, tons and tons more. That's just a short hit list of some of the entertainment offerings we're going to be dissecting here in the concluding installment of the Rux Trilogy. It is, without a doubt, one of the most discussed and appreciated interviews in BOA Audio history. Our email inbox has been overflowing with people who have enjoyed the first two installments. Trust me, my friends, you are going to seriously dig the wrap-up portion here of the Rocks Trilogy, also known as the Postscript. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Bruce Rocks, you should have listened to Part 1. That's where we did the bio. Go back and listen to that. I'm not going to repeat the whole thing. I am, however, going to throw in a couple plugs here for Bruce's two amazing books. Over the last two weeks and this week, we've been talking about Bruce's second book, Hollywood vs. the Aliens, outstanding piece of work, highly recommend it. His other book, Architects of the Underworld, I haven't had a chance to read it yet, but I will be reading it very soon. Both of those books are available on Amazon.com. Great summertime reading. You're going to really love Hollywood vs. the Aliens if you enjoyed the Rocks trilogy, because we really just scratched the surface of the amazing amount of material that can be found in that book. Bruce does not have a website, so I just direct you simply to Amazon.com, punch in Bruce Rocks, or punch in Hollywood vs. the Aliens, and or Architects of the Underworld, and pick up these amazing books from Bruce Rocks. You will not be disappointed. And with all that said, it's time to close the book on the Rux Trilogy, and it starts right now. 
This interview was recorded on June 12, 2009. Bruce Rocks talking about Hollywood versus the Aliens on BOA Audio Season 4. There is one movie from the Carter years that somebody reminded me of uh, between the last two times we've talked, and uh, it's sort of within the realm of Hangar 18, which we already talked about, uh-huh. uh, and that's Capricorn 1. Oh, yeah. That uh, yeah. Is, is, you know, sounds amazing, and I really want to see this flick, and, and uh, <laughs> as I've looked more into it, all about sort of like a, a Mars hoax, a Mars landing hoax, and sounds like it's just rich with esoteric material that you wonder, you know, where did some of this stuff come from? Very much so. I remember when that movie came out in the theater. Uh, Capricorn One, it, it's a good movie and a bad movie. It's got some horrible logic problems in it uh, that don't have to do with the central premise of faking a moonshot or a, a Mars shot. Uh, just logic problems about where someone comes up with something when they were locked up or, you know, things that should not be taking place by what's been established in the course of the picture. Yeah. I remember at the time I saw it, uh, I had trouble believing that you could fake such a thing. I have way changed my tune since then, and I wondered if Carter was trying to tell us something, because he, he very credibly dramatized uh, NASA faking a Mars shot. And it's extremely easy to transpose that to faking a moon shot. Yeah. Uh, what basically happens, for those that don't remember this movie, which will be practically everyone, if there was ever a movie that was ripe for a remake, this is it. Uh, that particular movie, it's not bad. Uh, it's worth watching. As a matter of fact, I think I'm going to put that on my rent list. I haven't seen it in forever. I'm sure glad you reminded me of it. Thank our friend Lone Gunman. He's the one. <laughs> That's his name. Thank you, Lone Gunman. <laughs> there you go. Thank you. <laughs> uh, yeah, this is a very good one to bring up. Uh, basically, NASA's run out of money. Uh, the public doesn't pay much attention to it anymore. The government doesn't care about it anymore. And they need to beef up their budget. What do they do? Well, they got a Mars shot coming. So the astronauts are ready for the Mars shot. And the three of them go trooping out to the rocket. It's all set. And as they're about to go up the gangplank, uh, they're stopped by men in black who say, come with us, sirs. And they say, uh, we have a rocket to catch. It's take it off here in about, oh, I don't know, three minutes. <laughs> we got to go. <laughs> so, no, you got to come with us. Uh, we got to go. You got to come with us. And they very are extremely insistent and make them come with them. And they get in a limousine and they're driven off. And they're taken to some place in the middle of nowhere in the desert. And there goes their rocket. They're watching it take off. They're very unhappy about this. And what the fuck is this? <laughs> and they get driven off to this place in the middle of nowhere in the desert. And they walk in. And it looks like a big soundstage in the middle of nowhere. And a light comes on, and there's their boss from NASA, the guy that set them up on this rocket in the first place. Hal Holbrook plays and does a really good job. So here he is, you know, this kind, grandfatherly sort of old guy who's been working there forever, and he's a good friend of theirs, and he's watched him go through the space shots forever. And he says, okay, guys, uh, it's like this. We can't get you to Mars, and we've known it for a long time. Uh, obviously, we couldn't tell you this because we need to keep our budget going. So we have to convince everyone that we have gone to Mars. So this is what we're going to do. He turns the lights on in the soundstage, and there's their lander. There's a set of Mars and the cameras and the lights. They say, okay, now uh, we're just going to do some, some tapes and some films of you uh, supposedly on the craft. Here's the set, and we'll release those at the appropriate times, and then you're going to step out on this and say all the appropriate words, and we're just going to film it all. And, of course, they say, no. <laughs> uh, you have to do it. And they say, no, you have to do it. No, 
you have to do it. And the implication is very plain. A, you're not going anywhere, and B, you talk and you're dead. Uh, and that's exactly what happens. They manage to get away after they've filmed all this stuff and after the stuff's been released and people are seeing it on TV. They manage to get away, but they have to get across the desert and get back home to let everyone know that they're still alive. Yeah. Because they're not. The ship crashed on the way back. So obviously they're not going to make it back anyway. Oh, wow. This sounds like an awesome movie. It's pretty good. I gotta see this. They should make a remake of it. It sounds awesome. Now it makes you wonder if there's like all these implications involved in this. <laughs> like as I'm thinking more about it and hearing you talk about it, it's like when the movie came out in the late 70s, 78. I presume that sort of the moon hoax thing had sort of been in the ether for a while, though, right? Actually, no. Uh, when the there were immediate calls of it being a hoax uh, from the time that uh, we landed or didn't. There were lots of people who said, oh, this isn't real, or they didn't believe it when they saw it on TV. Yeah. But pretty soon they were equated with Luddites, and everyone just said, oh, well, uh, get with the program. You don't know what's going on. The government would not lie to us about something like this. Mm -hmm. That was what always came out. I felt that way. I mean, plainly, I feel a lot differently now. But I felt that way. So I understand where they're coming from. That makes sense. I think I was, what, 11 when that happened? I remember when it happened. I was outside playing Gilligan's Island, as a matter of fact. <laughs> and uh, the moon landing was coming. I said, it's coming, it's coming. And we came inside, and we watched, and we were through the whole thing, and we were like, wow, this is really cool. You know, and we were big Star Trek fans, and, and everyone was into space back in the 60s. It was a big thing. Yeah. So, yeah, I had trouble when I saw this movie in 78, and I'd already begun to accept that, yeah, I think the government maybe has lied to us about a few things, but I did have trouble believing that they could fake something like that. Now, I pretty much accept that they probably did. Wow. Uh, I don't know if we did or not. Uh, I certainly don't believe we got to the moon the way we said we did, and certainly not in the equipment that we claim that we did it. So I really don't know if we actually went there or not. I only know that what we saw on TV was not legitimate. That's fairly demonstrable. It doesn't mean we didn't go, but what we saw on TV, that was fake. Interesting. Okay. Is this based on, you know, the classic moon hoax evidence, I guess you could say, or, you know, yeah. all the stuff people list? Yeah. We don't it's need all to, the classic you know. stuff. All right. Uh, you can find that on websites, actually. There's quite a bit of it, and, and oh, most yeah. of it is, is completely correct, at least as far as I can tell. Interesting, interesting. Okay. Like I said, it has all these implications. It makes you wonder, then, if, you know, like you said, that the the moon hoax then really didn't sound like it kicked up till you know, the 80s, 90s, and, you know, now it's kind of, it's still the bastard son of Esoterica, but it's, you know, yeah. it's in there. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, one of our local radio hosts just, I think yesterday or the day before, uh, one of our local radio hosts, I was listening, uh, driving in the car, uh, this came up, and uh, they weren't talking about this, they were talking about some other kind of, of hoax or conspiracy, and he said, we, well, we never went to the moon. The other guy said, oh, you're not one of those. And he said, yeah, I'm one of those. He said, we didn't go to the moon. And he started talking about it. It was plain that he had done some research on it, and he just didn't buy it. But that was just, you know, a local radio host. So it makes you wonder then, like, what the motivation, I guess, is behind making that movie. Is it like they want to make people give it a second thought or kind of like we talked about earlier, you know, make it so that people will be like, oh, you just saw that movie and discount what people say about the moon house. Six of one, half a dozen of another. Yeah. The idea behind all of this program in the first place was to present ideas to the public in a way that was laughable enough that you could dismiss it, but serious enough that you could actually think about it. You could do both at the same time. And for the most part, it worked. We're talking about it now. And they were talking about it then, too. Yeah, interesting. Okay. We've kind of closed the book on the Carter years, and we've talked a little bit already about the uh, the Reagan years, so we don't need really to get too specific. 
I guess just talk about what that transition was like, because you do say that, you know, it was a pretty stark difference between some of the stuff that was coming out in the Carter years. And I think from what I gather, what I recall from reading the book, that the quality of the thoughtful material sort of degenerated, too, during the Reagan years. But you can correct me if I'm wrong about that. But I guess just talk about that transition from Carter to Reagan and how it can be seen in the UFO flicks. Well, I think you phrased it essentially correctly. Uh, the first thing I need to say about Jimmy Carter, because you were asking what was the motivation behind this, looking at the movies that were made in Carter's administration, and I already talked about some of those, I very deeply believe that Jimmy Carter was about the most sincere president that we ever had, and that he genuinely wanted to tell people as much as he possibly could. But his hands were tied. There wasn't a whole lot he could do. And we can argue about his effectiveness as a president, or even his wisdom as a president, and even he would discuss that with you with a great deal of honesty. He's a remarkable man. Yeah. But while he was president, I'm very firmly convinced that he really did want to tell people as much as he possibly could, to have them informed and educated. And I admire him for that, more today than I did then. Reagan, on the other hand, uh, Reagan is a guy who was completely bought into the defense industry. This was obvious by Star Wars. That was pretty much his whole administration, selling Star Wars. Uh, the Republicans like to blame the Democrats for all of their ridiculous, you know, hog barrel stuff and spending. Well, the Republicans have all the hog barrel spending, too, but it's all the military. They just want to take all of that and dump it into the military. Yeah. So that was Reagan in a nutshell. And he's got a lot of people involved in intelligence uh, in his cabinet and people with all kinds of shady connections. And uh, he's buying whatever it is they tell him, or at least he's selling it to everybody else. So, yeah, sure, he wants to sell Star Wars as much as he possibly can. Uh, the movie Red Dawn came out while he was in. If any of you remember Red Dawn, uh, this is a realistically portrayed, or at least it's it's played serious as a heart attack. I don't believe it for a second, although the, the opening scene was pretty impressive, I have to admit. Uh, the entire premise of this movie is the Russians have invaded America. So here's a, a small town in Texas, I think it is. You know, kids going to school, it's a nice spring day or what have you. And uh, look, parachutes outside. Here <laughs> are <laughs> these guys in uniforms with AKs. And they take over. And that's Red Dawn. Uh, the, the whole movie is just that, you know, freedom fighters, resistance, uh, saying, oh, we'll get the evil commies out of here, those bastards, how dare they invade our country. Yeah, 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 yeah. As though this was going to happen. In what universe did anyone think that this was seriously going to happen? But they play it. Serious as a heart attack. And you have to know the entire purpose of doing that is to make people think, oh, my God, this could actually happen. Yeah. I could look out my window tomorrow, and, and we could be Russian. That would be horrible. <laughs> uh, there was something that came out. I can't remember the name of it now. Uh, it was a TV thing, a miniseries, where the Russians had peacefully taken over America. And it was America with a K, A-M-E-R-I-K-A. -E uh, this thing was really remarkable because basically you have a resistance that wants to fight the Russians. They're in the White House. They've taken over everything, right? I mean, we've just handed it to them because our economy's gone down the shitter, and here they are. They kind of bail us out, so now they're pretty much in charge. Well, the joke is, and it depends on how you're watching it and how much you buy, but the joke is if the price of eggs hasn't changed and if everything's still running the, the way it always has been, who's going to be in a resistance? No one cares. They don't give a damn whether the guy up top is actually speaking Russian or what. Now, he can be speaking Russian, Chinese, Polish. They don't care. Is everything still running smoothly? Good. You know, they're, they're not going to complain. Unless you are watching this and then, oh, my God, there's a whole lot of Americans saying, no, we can't have this. We have to fight this guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, the Russians came and take over and the economy improves. That's fine with me. Well, that's kind of the point, isn't it? <laughs>
<laughs> people would be cheering. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, some people would. You always have people who say no. And, you know, it's questionable whether they should feel that way or not. I couldn't really tell you, actually. Uh, but certainly that type of thing has happened in history before. The Germans and the French have done it all the time. Uh, the Germans were always bailing out the French. They, they were crippling each other's economies and then taking over, you know. And yeah. half the people. Hell, in World War II, the French resistance, everyone has to understand, was really a very small movement. Most of the French didn't have a problem with the Germans. They didn't care because the price of eggs was the same. And they hated the English more. So as long as the Germans were there, at least it kept the English out. Well, is there anything else we should discuss about the Reagan years? Is there anything I'm going to miss here uh, from the 80s flicks? I know there's a shitload of movies that we could talk about, but, you know, we... <laughs> oh, absolutely. I'm sure we'll miss a crap load. I, I suppose we should mention E.T. That one would be very important. Yeah, yeah. I, I, yeah, I keep I keep wondering why I missed that one uh, earlier. Well, I, I would have missed it. It just crossed my mind because it completely slipped my mind otherwise. Uh, usually if someone thinks about the Reagan years, and like I said before, you've got your your evil aliens that come out, generally during Republican administrations, though there are exceptions, uh, some even in the Carter years. And you have the friendlier or more interesting ones that come out during the Democratic years. Well, this is an exception. Uh, E.T. is the ultimate friendly alien movie, or it was for a lot of people. Thon hom, thon hom. Everybody <laughs> loves E.T. How can you not love E.T.? Uh, you know, little kids get to meet E.T., and they take care of him, and he becomes a friend, and they get him back home again. And even the government bad guys, you know, the men in black, they're not E.T.'s enemy either. They want to understand him and figure out what's going on, uh, and we do have to kind of steal him away from them to get him back home, because they'd probably hold on to him till he died. Uh, so in, in a sense, you have a Republican administration showing both good and bad government guys, or good government guys in a bad government setup, or what have you, however you want to put it. And you have a, a very positive image of an alien interacting with human beings. It cuts both ways, I guess. Uh, yeah, a little things. bit. I guess we should talk a little bit because we're doing the E.T. thing here. and We did talk about uh, Close Encounters, and, and hopefully a little bit later we'll talk about the miniseries there, Taken. And I think maybe he's even done another uh, UFO alien movie. But what's your take on Spielberg in general and just how he's sort of made a lot of these signature UFO movies? And there'll always be an endless debate within the... UFO subculture as to how with it or in the know he is to the whole thing. Spielberg could not be more bought in. I mean, just look at him. Uh, you think this guy's going to do anything to rock the boat? He's rich as sin. He's not going to do anything to rock any boat. Because we've already kind of talked about how Close Encounters, you know, may have serious ties to Carter. It just makes you wonder then, like, if... I'm sure he had other big movies before that, but... Jaws. Yeah, there you go. Actually, he had uh, two... You know, if you want to go over his career, Sugarland Express was uh, pretty well accepted. It was a good movie, kind of a cult flick, but it was successful enough. He did Duel on TV, which is a very good movie, written by Richard Matheson, who's one of the best writers in this field, and one of the best writers, period. He's just fabulous. Uh, and then he had Jaws. He had a couple little TV movies, uh, which were not bad. They were workmanlike, is the word I like to use. Yeah. Uh, they were effective. They did what they were supposed to do. They weren't bad. But then he had Jaws. Jaws was just a huge mega hit, and that launched him. I'm imagining my own conspiratorial scenario now. You know, he makes the Jaws movie. It's huge. They're going to make this alien movie. They get him on board. He realizes that if he plays the game, he'll benefit from untold riches. And you know, absolutely. The party take a look at the guy's. Take a look at the guy's history. One of his favorite movies, if not his favorite movie, is 2001. I mean, he had private screenings of 2001 all the time. He, he owns a copy of the movie and watches it all the time. He just loves it. Well, who made that, and why do you suppose he made it? Now, Stanley Kubrick was attached to that. It's like passing a torch. 
You find people who are already simpatico to what you're doing anyway, and those are the people who are already on the inside are going to pass the torch too. Yeah. They're going to say, I know that you feel this way, and I know you're very passionate about it, and as a matter of fact, so am I. I recognize the same feeling. Why don't you help us out? So we'll help you out. It's just amazing to think about. And uh, all right, so that kind of closes the book on the Reagan years. We're going to speed a little bit here. And, and in the book, in your book, uh, Hollywood vs. the Aliens, I sensed a sort of lamentation that things hadn't changed when Clinton took over for, I guess, we're, we're completely skipping <laughs> George Bush uh, right. Sr., but hell, that's the Reagan years too. So That is the Reagan years too. The only thing <laughs> that really changed with Bush Sr., uh, they got meaner. The movies were a lot meaner. Where you had alien encounters, Reagan would tend towards some of the more comical stuff. Uh, Bush didn't. If there was anything other, anything alien, it was it was evil as hell itself, like Hellraiser. Hellraiser is an abduction movie, basically. And the other is just something you do not want to be exposed to. Because what if the other will destroy you, it will drag you to hell, the most horrible things will happen to you. Stay away from it. And uh, that was pretty much what you got during the Bush years. Before we get into Clinton, I guess, and, 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 the, lament and the lamentation that I mentioned earlier, but this sort of popped into my head when I was listening to what we'd already talked about previously. I'm just trying to, like, wrap my head around sort of a little bit more like the process of how this might have worked in the sense that, like, earlier we talked about how Nixon was sort of freaked out by sex, and you can kind of see that in the movies, and then, you know, obviously Carter and, and the whole thing about wanting more UFO information out, and... We've gone through sort of like how these films are reflected, reflected the personality of the presidents. I guess I'm just sort of wondering like how that trickles down to the movies from the president in a way. Do you know what I mean? Like, you know, I can hear the skeptical people being like, don't they have better things to do than influence movies and, and stuff like that? So I guess I'm trying hard to form this into a question, but do you kind of see uh, well, where I'm going? I can form it into an answer even before you make it a question. There you go. That's why, that's why you and I are on the same level here. <laughs> Very much so. There are very few things more important than influencing the movies. The idea is to influence public opinion. And if you want to influence public opinion at its base level and reach all the way into somebody's soul, you are going to use drama. It's the best possible means that you can use. So, of course, they're going to be interested in that. That's going to be extremely important to them. It's propaganda. Media is propaganda. And entertainment is media. In fact, it's the most important media precisely because it does reach into the soul. It's not someone being told something. It's being made to feel something. You can actually reach inside someone and create a feeling or draw a feeling out of them. And that's what's going to really shape their opinions. Okay. That sort of uh, settles that. It does make a lot of sense when you put it that way. So just sort of piggyback, I guess, a little bit onto that. Uh, you're saying that the, the Bush senior years were a little darker and more violent, I guess you could say, or sinister of these otherworldly type beings. That kind of makes you wonder because a lot of people you know, suggest that he was pretty connected to – whatever the base of knowledge is on the inside. So, could not you know, be more connected. This he must guy be really was... freaked out by these aliens. Oh, yeah. He could not be more connected. He was the head of the CIA, for crying out loud. George Bush Sr. is the guy that was actually shredding the MK Ultra documents when the church committee was trying to pull them out. Wow. He was the guy. He was personally doing it. <laughs> so, yeah, I guess just makes you, you know, if, if we're, like, looking at the movies as a window to what they know, it's like... Hmm, you know, maybe somewhere along the way after Carter or something, they realized that this thing's bad news because, like you said, and, and this sort of goes right back to what I was setting up for earlier with the question, that things didn't seem to change uh, when Clinton came into office, and that sort of goes against the previously observed generalization, you know, of Republicans versus Democrats and how the aliens are portrayed. 
Correct. At least that's my take on it. For instance, look at Independence Day, for God's sake. Uh, Independence Day is every 1950s movie rolled into one without the heart and soul, with big, much bigger splashier special effects, with a little bit more humor and uh, really no soul to it. It's just kind of tossed in front of you. Independence Day is a really bizarre movie. But there they are, the evil aliens. They've come to destroy us all, and we have to stop them. Now, that's kind of typical of what you got throughout most of Quentin. There were exceptions. Men in Black, I think, was an exception. Well, actually, Men in Black definitely was an exception. That was a different take on it. And the best thing, I think, that came out of those movies was showing people behind the scenes dealing with this. For instance, everyone in the organization, in the Men in Black, uh, knows every alien on the planet. There are a lot of them. Is that my third grade teacher? Oh, yeah. She's an alien. I know it. <laughs> and, you know, they got lists. There's all kinds of people. And they talk with some of these people. And some of these people know that they're on to them. And, you know, they work together. They're friends. And I think that's largely what the National Security Agency has been doing since it was created, is keeping files on people who have been abductees uh, and have had some sort of connection with them. At the risk of psychoanalyzing or, or speculating too much, why do you think the, the Clinton years didn't see that drastic change? I wish I could answer that myself. I, I think Clinton was very much, um, well, let's put it this way. John Stewart recently was joking on The Daily Show, and everyone got the joke and laughed uproariously, especially me, that Bush and Clinton had been spending so much time together as ex-presidents that they were getting married in Hawaii. <laughs> You practically can't fit a piece of paper between them, and, and that amazes me. That actually does amaze me. I don't know if they were always that close, but they really are as ex-presidents. Yeah, I've kind of heard that uh, in recent years, too, that they had been close previous to Clinton becoming president. and thought I'd heard that kind of stuff, but, you know, that's always percolating in the underground, so you never know what. Well, certainly, and I probably wouldn't have believed it at the time. But, you know, later you look at some stuff and say, well, I don't know. <laughs> if it quacks like a duck. Yeah, maybe they were on the same page. Maybe they were on the same page. Well, ultimately, uh, there are some differences in ideology, definitely, from president to president and from party to party. But ultimately, there are times when party completely disappears. For instance, whatever your take is on it, whether you agree with it or not, the Republicans and the Democrats immediately were in bed together on 9-11. Whatever actually took place, they all got on the same page and said, we're going to do this. They all signed on. And they are still pretty much signed on, with very few exceptions. Yeah. They're all still signed on. Makes you kind of think, too, that maybe one outgoing administration influences like the next. Like we were saying, you know, it sounds like Bush is terrified by this alien thing. So maybe so either he's terrified by it or he wanted to make sure that everyone else was terrified by it or possibly both. Yeah. So it just like makes you wonder, you know, there's only a few people that can really talk about this who are in the know. Presidents, you know, they might talk to each other and. Bush team could be like, I'm totally freaked out by this, dude. You should be too, to Clinton or something. You know what I mean? So who knows? Well, even if, and, and this is why I was talking a bit about the Carter years especially, and why I brought out the, the negative portrayals during the Carter years as part of the exception, because I thought they were very important. Like I said, I think he was trying to publicize as much as he possibly could. He really did. Uh, he pledged to, to publicize everything he knew about UFOs when he went in, and I believe he meant that. And I think that he did as much as he possibly could in the movies, some of which we've been talking about. But you had things like Demon Seed with, you know, a computer robot rape and artificial insemination producing offspring. And uh, it's very unpleasant. It's an excellent movie, by the way. I recommend it. Yeah. Dated, but, uh, dated and unpleasant, but definitely worth watching. And that's a, a not precisely unrealistic view of what's happening. It's just a really negative spin on it. 
Uh, if you get actual abductee accounts, it's not quite like that. However, for someone who was just being uh, for someone being first exposed to it, yeah, it would probably be about that terrifying. <laughs> yeah. I guess the last sort of like big picture theme that's in Hollywood vs. the Aliens uh, that I wanted to bring up here, just that you observe that there may be sort of this curious irony that the CIA, when we're using that sort of as the blanket term for whoever's sure. adding all this uh, stuff into the mix. Alphabet soup. There you go. Their plan to diffuse UFOs over the course of all these decades may eventually or may have already resulted in their ability to actually ever tell the truth because they've polluted the subject so much that... <laughs> they've painted themselves so far into a corner, they, they probably can't get out of it, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Do you think that's the sort of situation that we're at now as a as a culture, I guess you could say? I mean, you know, it's a, it's a kind of... They've created this big problem here. Well, in order to come clean, they would have to come clean about pretty much everything else that they have been lying about, which, of course, is not going to happen. Because once you expose that and everyone figures out how you were covering that up, they're going to figure out how you were covering everything else up, too. So yeah. if, if you were to come clean on that, trust me, whoop, might as well just open all your files and say, okay, no more secrets. Everybody knows what's going on. So, yeah, they're not going to do that. And so you think maybe, you know, they probably should have told the truth like a long time ago, I guess, then. I, oh, we I don't know. We don't know, really, though, because we don't know what the, what the truth is. <laughs> I would love to be able to say yes to that. I understand the sort of quandary that Jimmy Carter was in, Frankly, I understand the sort of quandary that Ronald Reagan was in, and all of them. I understand why they dealt with it the way they dealt with it, recognizing their personalities, recognizing the reality of what was going on behind the scenes, and the sort of people that they were associating with in their administrations and politically and such. I understand why they viewed it the way they viewed it and why they presented it the way that they presented it. We're a bunch of blind men feeling the elephant. Even if you pretty much do know what's going on and pretty much do know what the elephant looks like, everyone feels differently about it. They don't know how to take that. Uh, there are some people, again, we go right back to Men in Black, where uh, Will Smith says, look, uh, we got to tell people about this. And uh, Tommy Lee Jones says, no. He says, well, people are smart. They can, they can take this. And he says, no, they're not. A person is smart. People are dumb. <laughs> Yesterday, you thought there were no aliens. Today, you know there are. Well, it took a long time for people to recognize that the Earth wasn't flat. So, yeah, now you're among those who know, but who are you going to tell? Who are you going to tell who's going to believe you? Yeah, it's quite a quandary. It's quite a strange uh, situation we've gotten ourselves into. All right, is there anything else in, obviously there's a shitload of stuff, but, <laughs> but right. is there anything else in Hollywood versus the aliens that we may have missed that, you know, that uh, you might want to talk about before we start oh, talking about Oh, are you kidding? Tons of shit, but I wouldn't know where to start. Yes, I wouldn't know, where, I wouldn't know where, one place to start. When we were talking in the early 1950s about getting everything started on the ground, uh, I think I brought up Invaders from Mars, which is one that I really should get into, because Invaders from Mars, which was, now I have to cast my mind back, I want to say 1953, I believe. Mm -hmm. This is a filmed nightmare movie. This movie scared the crap out of me when I was a kid. They used to show it on TV all the time, and it must have been really scary when it was made years before in the 50s. Uh, it was a color movie. William Cameron Menzies did the sets. Uh, William Cameron Menzies was a very, very famous director. Uh, he was involved with Gone with the Wind. And uh, he did this kind of stark, simplistic, futuristic setting for Martian flying saucers coming to Earth. And they burrow themselves under the ground, and they send out these giant robots, or people come walking out into, uh, or they, they don't actually call them robots, I shouldn't say that, they're mutants. They call them <laughs> mutants. 
but there are these enormous things that wear unitards and have great big, uh, you know, uh, ping pong ball eyes, and they all look exactly the same, and they all kind of move stiffly and bounce around like robots, frankly, and they're bulletproof. Bulletproof, grenade-proof, bomb-proof. You keep knocking them down, they keep getting back up. Yeah. Well, once you go to the sand pit, the earth opens up, sucks you in, the robots, we'll call them robots, the robots pick you up, they knock you out, they put you on a slab, turn you over, and implants put in the back of your neck, and now you're under their control. And you perform acts of sabotage against rocket shots, and you murder people, and do all kinds of horrible things. And as soon as the evil Martians are done with you, they blow the implant up and give you a cerebral hemorrhage. Boom, down you go. Okay, well, this stark UFO setting had not exactly been reported yet. Again, this is 1953. Yeah. Unitard aliens, which are just giant greys. Implants. Mind control. You have to know this is what the government was thinking at that time. Very much so. And they were portraying it very seriously. Uh, it, it's completely melodramatic. There's not a, a, a cracked smile anywhere in the presentation of this movie. Beautiful color, very well shot. I highly recommend it. People should go back and watch it. If nothing else, it's an interesting history lesson, just to go back and have a look at it. And in fact, on disc, uh, you get not only the American version, but the United Kingdom version, which is slightly different. In the United Kingdom version, they actually put a little bit more uh, science and background about space shots and Mars and all of that. It's quite interesting. Huh. Interesting, yeah. It's weird that they would... See the you can kind of see the difference between the two cultures there. All right, well that's Hollywood versus the aliens, folks. Six hundred pages. Uh, we've just <laughs> we've just talked for a very long time, and as I said way back when we started this conversation, uh, you know the book was published in 1997, so we're talking 12 years have gone by, and and there's been a whole just an amazing sea change in a lot of different aspects of the media. Um, you know, just to name a few off the top of my head, you know we've got 9/11, we've got the internet. We've got reality TV. I mean, those are three things that are huge that have really changed the world uh, since the book came out. So I guess to start off our post-book discussion, you know, you spent 600 pages and an amazing amount of time, I'm sure, researching this book, and it finished in 1997, 12 years later. How have you seen sort of what you were looking at progress over those years? How has it changed since the book came out? Well, uh, that's a really good question. I'd say probably the two most influential shows that came out right after my book went to press uh, were Stargate SG-1, which was taking off after Stargate, plainly. Mm -hmm. uh, and at the time, I mentioned it in my book, and I said, well, uh, it's not the huge success like Star Wars that they obviously intended it to be, but it's pretty successful. It's way successful. It's going on its second spinoff in the fall. And the thing ran for, what, like eight or nine seasons? I mean, it just ran for flipping ever. Uh, had a really good cast and very well produced. Pretty impressive overall, and not too terribly unrealistic. I mean, you, for alien implants, they've got alien parasites that take people over. But otherwise, uh, you know, you're fighting ancient astronauts, basically, or the ancient Egyptian gods that created the human race, uh, and they're still around. And not all of them are evil, necessarily, just most of them. Uh, and you've got Cheyenne Mountain. This is a secret project inside Cheyenne Mountain, and some people know about it. And they take care of it. They work on it behind the scenes. It's not a bad show, really. Uh, I didn't talk about it too much at the time because I didn't have cable. I didn't have, well, I didn't have Showtime is what I should say, and that's where it was on. Yeah. It was a pretty new show. Uh, I was apprised of it. I knew what was taking place in it, but I hadn't really watched it yet. Not bad. Uh, the most impressive one, it was very shortly after my book came out, was Roswell. Uh, Roswell is an extremely positive spin, and uh, one of my favorites, actually. I thought they did a pretty good job with it. I was taking the whole E.T. route, 
and you've got human ETs. Uh, there are three kids who were from the Roswell crash, and they were in pods and suspended animation, so they came out in, I forget what year, but they're in high school in uh, 1997 or whatever year it was. Uh, so whenever it was, we do the math. Yeah. Uh, that's when they came out of their pods. And they're three aliens. Uh, they find out before too long that they're aliens, and they keep it secret among themselves because they're afraid of what will happen if it comes out. <laughs> they think the government's going to kidnap them, do horrible things to them, try and find everything out about them, which happens. That happens in the course of the show. And they have to be very careful who they trust. But they're just people. They're interacting with everyone else. They get along. Uh, one of them falls in love with a waitress at a coffee shop whose life he saves. And as a matter of fact, if you see the movie Twilight, it's practically a straight ripoff of Roswell, almost plot point for plot point. Oh, wow. And if, for those who have watched Roswell and those who have seen Twilight, think about it. And I'm not trying to create a copyright issue. I'm just saying. Uh, basically, in Twilight, uh, you have this girl who doesn't know about the vampires, and a car almost crashes into her, and the vampire, boom, lightning speed, rushes over, pushes her out of the way, and boom, stops the car. Well, she can't help but notice something a little unusual about that. And that's how she first finds out who he is, and he eventually reveals himself to her, and they have to keep it secret. The exact same thing happens in Roswell, uh, except Max uh, is in a restaurant when a stray bullet uh, takes out uh, the girl that he happens to be in love with. And she doesn't know it yet, just a waitress there. So he goes over, he heals her, because they're able to do that, and then he's breaks some ketchup and sprays it around and puts his finger to his lips, like, don't tell anybody. If they come over, because she'd been seen shot, they knew a bullet had gone into her, they thought it had. Yeah. So he made it look like, oh, a ketchup bottle fell over, you were all just mistaken. And of course, she asks him about it later, and he, you know, tries to fob it off as best he can, but it's exactly the same kind of meeting that takes place in Twilight. Weird. Uh, and largely the same type of thing goes on in the movie that goes on in that series. And I guess this would include also... Uh you know, the decade that we covered here from the book, but did you see any sort of, like, change in information that came out over the years uh, that you think may have come from the inside? It was all pretty much at that base that we talked about at the beginning, you know, that there's a Mars connection, there's an ancient astronaut's connection, the ETs are robots. Um, do you think that anything else well, the might ETs themselves aren't, but what, yeah. what we frequently call those, those are, yes. Right, right. I kind of use them interchangeably, so. Right. Um, but do you think there's anything else that might have come out over the years that, that we should take a second look at? The Capricorn 1 thing almost, in a way, too, would be sort of like, you know, maybe that was something that came along a little later on, that there was some other information in there that about the moon hoax that we hadn't thought of or something. Oh, sure. You mean like satellite stuff that comes out? Uh, well, you have a movie like, say, Shooter, that just came out recently, which is what? Story Lee Harvey Oswald, pretty much. Uh, difference being that uh, this Lee Harvey Oswald is a crack shot, and he's been hired to take the fall because everyone's going to believe that he's it. Uh, yeah, you see satellite stuff coming out in lots of movies over the years, I think. Now, what do you mean by satellite stuff? Well, it's not dealing with UFOs specifically. Oh, okay, but it, okay. But it does deal with uh, secret information and kind of getting it out there. For that matter, uh, The Manchurian Candidate's an excellent call. The Manchurian Candidate ties in directly with the alien stuff, actually. Uh, that... The story behind the movie is far more fascinating than the movie itself, and the movie's great. Uh, both versions are actually pretty good. The first one's a classic. Uh, the story behind this, you got a bunch of guys in the Korean War. Of course, it's Iraq in the remake. Uh, they disappeared for a weekend. They don't really remember what happened to them. They just kind of are fuzzy. But they do remember that their sergeant, Raymond Shaw, wow, what a guy. He's just the best guy who ever lived. He saved all of our lives. He held all these guys off. Man, is he incredible. 
But the funny thing is, every single guy that says that couldn't stand Raymond Shaw. He was the most horrible person they ever knew in their entire life. He was the most unlovable person who ever lived. <laughs> but if anyone asks them about him, they say, oh, what a great guy. He's incredible. They go slack-jawed, and they look at you with this, these blank expressions, say, he's the most, kind of most wonderful man I ever met in my entire life. And then they snap back to normal, like they don't even know what they said. Well, and they all have nightmares. They're all suffering from these recurring nightmares. And in the nightmare, they're all sitting in some familiar setting, and there's all the guys in their platoon with them. And, uh, for instance, there's this one black guy, he's in a uh, church setting, and there are these nice black women there who are talking among each other like they're having a social. And uh, the soldier, who's very much a soldier, sees himself in a friendly military setting. Uh, everyone's got their own individual setting that they're seeing here. Yeah. But in, while they're listening to the conversation and just kind of looking around, occasionally they'll see some Russian guy in a uniform or some Chinese guy standing in the background, and then it's just kind of gone as soon as it was there. And the conversation is really bizarre, because the conversation that's taking place is, well, you will notice the subject is now behaving in X fashion. If I do this with the subject, the subject will respond in this particular way. Uh, would you please show me? Why, yes. Um, private, how do you feel about the corporal sitting next to you? I like him just fine, sir. I want you to take this scarf and strangle him to death. And he does. And then he wakes up screaming. Well, every single person in the platoon has had an experience like this. And one of them starts figuring out what's going on when he sees the valet to the sergeant, some guy that they knew uh, in Korea. He was one of their informers in Korea, and he catches up with Raymond Shaw in the States. And now that same guy is his valet. And he knows this guy had something to do with it. He beats him up. And the army arrests him, and they bring him on in, and they say, what the hell was that all about? And he says, okay, look, I don't know what the hell happened to us in Korea, but I am telling you, that guy has something to do with it, and somebody fucked with us. And the military are all kind of looking at him on the panel, and they say, okay, look, we want you to check some pictures out for us, and uh, just point anyone out that looks familiar to you. And they flash some slides for him, and he, he selects two people, and he says, those guys are in my nightmares every single time. And they stop, and they very seriously ponder, and one of them finally says, Well, that guy is a Russian mind control expert. And this guy is a Chinese mind control expert. And you guys were kidnapped. And you have been programmed. What we have to find out is why. Now, Raymond Shaw happens to be the guy who's their best programmed candidate. And what he has been programmed to do is to assassinate a presidential candidate so that someone else gets into office. And the person that he is getting into office is a total communist sympathizer. So we're going to have a red Chinese and Russian sympathetic president in the White House. Now, bearing in mind this is 1962, 1963, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. You might as well still have been in uh, Eisenhower's years. Yeah. That same type of feeling. We were terrified of communism. Oh my Jesus, this would be the end of the world. And it is a very nefarious plot, and it is extremely well-dramatized, and it is entirely credible. It is also directly connected to the UFO subject in the subject of mind control and what it's being used for. In fact, in the movie, and I believe this is also in the book, uh, there's a scene where the captain who's investigating all this and has started putting it all together meets this woman on a train who becomes his love interest. And she, in the, out of nowhere, in the middle of the movie, tells this story where she says, you know, when I was a kid, I used to say that I was probably landed here on a, a crashed spaceship from Mars. What the hell is that doing in there? It's just tossed in, out of nowhere. Yeah. There's another point where Raymond Shaw 
suddenly gets a phone call. And as soon as he gets the phone call, he goes a little slack-jawed. He just disappears, walks out, doesn't say a word, goes to a pre-arranged pre location. And there are the red Chinese guys. And they say, hi, Raymond, how are you doing? And he says, just fine, sir. He says, lie down, Raymond, we just need to check you out. Okay, sir. And they're just checking him out and doing a little bit of medical examination. They ask him a few questions. And while they're doing it, the Chinese guy is saying, well, we have to do this every couple of years just to make sure that we keep the connections going, so to speak. Well, the time he gives is two years. Two years is also the period of a Martian opposition. Could be coincidence, yes, but mighty interesting. Yeah, it does sound like that movie's ripe for esoteric uh, stuff that's hidden in there. Now, obviously, people didn't really know about uh, the MK Ultra thing at that time when the, when the movie came out originally. Exactly. That program was still in operation at the time that that movie came out, and it was not known. It was not publicized. MK Ultra was not publicized until the late 1970s when the church committee, the Senate committee, started getting all of the MKUltra documents. They were doing investigation into CIA abuses. MKUltra was top of that list, pretty much. And they got a lot of documents out. A former senator named John Marks wrote a book called In Search of the Manchurian Candidate, as a matter of fact, or The Search for the Manchurian Candidate. Excellent book. He quotes a lot of the documents and uh, shows how it was done. One thing I did kind of find interesting that maybe you can shed some light on was uh, you kind of alluded to this in the when you were talking just now about Men in Black, was how, you know, they kind of showed them behind the scenes. Do you think that sort of portrayal changed over the years where, you know, what the government knew, the story changed as the years went on, where, you know, maybe back in the day it was like they were trying to figure it out, and now it's like the government's known all along, and it's sort of oh, like... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, very much so. I think the government figured it all... This is where it gets to be a parlor game. Once you understand the joke and you've kind of gotten it all together, then you start looking over the evidence and saying, okay, who knew what and when, and how did they deal with it? Well, in 1960, uh, the first head of the CIA, uh, Admiral Hillencoder, I can't remember his first name now. I think it was Roscoe. Anyway, he uh, retired from service, uh, and in 1960 when he did that, his recommendation to the CIA was that everything that they knew about UFOs should be brought forth openly in front of Congress and discussed and, and be made known to the public. Yeah. In other words, let's put it out there. Let's talk about it. Well, hard to say. Uh, if you cast your mind back, uh, how would the world have changed if they actually did that? Uh, one way, you can kind of see that in some Japanese movies, as a matter of fact, because practically every Japanese movie that has flying saucers in it, and that's most of them, you always have the UN, and people get up in front of the UN, and they're openly talking about flying saucers, and saying, well, they're coming down, they're performing mind control on us, abducting people, and they do this. Uh, they're, they're picking people up, performing mind control on them, they're sabotaging us, yeah, 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 they're a big threat, we have to do something about them. And you have a United Nations team getting together and coming up with ways to combat the evil flying saucer menace. Uh, that's pretty much every Japanese movie that's made that has flying saucers in it. <laughs> at, at least the early ones back in the 1960s, 50s and 60s, uh, along with abductions. They do abductions of mind control and all this other kind of thing. Yeah. To sort of like throw back a little bit to what I was saying, it almost makes you wonder if they at some point were like, you know, maybe we should also see the idea to these people who are watching the movies that we've known all along. So when eventually they find out that we've known all along, they'll already, you know what I mean? Kind of like Absolutely. what we're saying with the UFO thing. Absolutely. At such time as they finally decide they want to come clean. My own personal belief on that is that that will happen when they land on the White House lawn or wherever else they land publicly and make themselves known. But as soon as that happens, you better believe every government in the entire world is going to rush to the microphones and the cameras and say, we knew all along, we knew all along, we knew all along. We were protecting you. We were waiting to tell you. Now you know. Don't you love us? You feel different about us now, don't you? Right, right. And it's almost like uh, well, always, there's going to always be these staunch 
you know, anti-UFO people, but but it seems like almost the the attitude of a lot of people is just that the just that just that the government's known all along and they're not telling us. So what's the point in even getting too worked up about it or looking into it? Well, it has and it hasn't. The best way to figure out how secrets are handled by the government is to look at the history of how secrets have been handled by the government. Who knew about the atomic bomb? President of the United States, General Leslie Groves, who was in charge of the project, and the Secretary of State, I believe it was. They were the only ones that knew. The rest were just the scientists working on it. No one else in Congress knew. They were not told. And the Vice President did not know. Truman was not informed until after the President died. Then he was informed, and they said, what do you want to do with this? <laughs> so that's how secret it was, and that's how it was handled. Yeah. Uh, you have to imagine they did pretty much the same thing with UFOs. The atomic bomb was pretty serious stuff. That was going to be about the biggest secret you were going to see. And the next biggest secret after that was definitely going to be UFOs, which were tied directly in with atomic bombs. Yeah, it's quite a lot to wrap your mind around. Now, as we said, we, the book came out in 1997. I guess it's like a two-pronged question. We sort of joked around earlier, like, where you been, Bruce? But have you thought about doing another book, even if it's not on the Hollywood aspect of the UFO phenomenon? I know you wrote the Architects book earlier. You know, um, do you have anything in the works since 97? Because, I mean, this book's amazing, and I'm really looking forward to reading Architects. So, you know, I, I wish you'd do some more stuff. Well, yes and no. Uh, I write plays mostly. There's no avenue for them either. I just do it because I like writing plays. I'm good at it. I think I'm good at it. And I have... Um I've written papers, more or less, but I really haven't published them anywhere. Uh, and my friends are always bothering me to write a book about masons and pirates, because the Brethren of the Coast, as the pirates called themselves back in the Golden Age, were masons, which I can pretty well prove. Uh, the real problem is it would make a great chapter in a book on pirates, but I don't know how to make a whole book out of it, to tell you the truth. Okay, okay. Was there any sort of like deliberate decision on your part to... Now, we kind of, like I said, we kind of joked about this, but I do want to, you know, get into, you know, like where you've been and, and you haven't done too many interviews or anything like that since, like I said, like the year 2000, so. Nobody asks. I don't <laughs> think how many people have read my books, to tell you the truth. Well, I'm glad that the uh, the listeners there planted the seed to get you on the show, because this has been an amazing conversation. Oh, I'm having time of my life. This is great. Yeah, well, you should think about a re-release of the book, updated, covering the next 12 years of, of the stuff. If there were a market in that, see, that's not even my call. Uh, my publisher, you have to realize we haven't gone through even 5,000 in uh, the second book. Oh, wow. Uh, we haven't gone in 10,000 on the first. The first is considered a bestseller by my publisher. My bank account would not know that. <laughs> but it, it hasn't even gone 10,000 copies in, what, 12, 13 years now. Uh, the second book has not sold 5,000 copies. I don't know how many it has, but uh, it, it just hasn't sold at all. It gets 10 times the publicity, but uh, it just doesn't sell. Weird, weird. Well, people are afraid to read, <laughs> you know. Yeah, or they've just stopped reading. Yeah. I think mostly they read uh, what they're going to get off the Internet, and, and I don't slam the Internet like most people do. Actually, the Internet is not a bad place to get material, but uh, you want to take it as the first word, not the last word. When you're doing research on the net, take notes and uh, find out what notes they're using and track down the written material and kind of check it there. But it's a great place to pick up information just for a start. Yeah, yeah. So there's no, like, reason why you kind of went off the grid of, of the UFO thing. I don't blame – like oh, no. I said earlier, I don't blame you. I mean, fuck. <laughs> if I could well, find a way to unplug myself from the grid at this point, I think I would. But, you know, that's why I, I sometimes think uh, that you're in an enviable position. But there wasn't any sort of like we were, like, fed up with the UFO field or anything like that. Oh, no. Uh, I have uh, – you mentioned the last interview I gave was in 2000. That's probably correct. I kind of lose track of these things. You, you just don't think about it every day. Uh, it has been a while, I know that. If you say that's what it was, you're probably right. 
I have given probably two, maybe three talks at conventions after that, and they've been small conventions, MUFON, for instance. And you get a mixed bag when you go to a UFO convention. It really depends on who you're talking to. Probably the best group that I talked to, ironically, and this does amaze me, was in Denver. Uh, the Denver UFO Society, which has the unenviable acronym of DOOFUS. <laughs> they are actually extremely well-read, or at least they were when I was talking with them. Uh, I never had to go on into any, any background at all on UFO stuff. If I mentioned, say, uh, the Washington Nationals, they knew exactly what I was talking about. They could quote it right back to me. And that was true on everything that I mentioned. So I said, good, these guys have actually done their homework. They know what's going on. And they were a very receptive audience. Uh, you go into MUFON, on the other hand, and it sort of depends where you're at. Like, I went to MUFON in Orange County. Uh, and, again, I would not have expected this, but most of the people that were in the audience in MUFON, Orange County, were very receptive, uh, very intelligent, and had done a lot of research. There were also quite a few nuts in the bunch. Uh, I gave a talk at the Denver MUFON thing, and that was, like, way different. Uh they just, I didn't get the impression that they were as receptive, or if they were, they had too many people that were kind of disruptive in the ranks. Uh, when you give a talk to a UFO bunch, uh, they're almost the least receptive people that you can talk to. Anyone in a UFO group has already made up their mind before they walk in the door what they believe. Yeah. They do not want to hear anything that contradicts what they already believe. The only difference between me and them, I have made up my mind also, but I've studied it very, very thoroughly. And if someone were to present some sort of conflicting evidence that I could believe, then I would certainly weigh that into the equation. But most of these people have done a smattering of research, and they've simply made up their minds on what it is. So if you say anything that contradicts that, they have already tuned you out, and they're already hostile to you. And that's just the way it is. So they're very, very hard to talk to. Yeah, yeah. And you can extend that also to, you know, just the online UFO scene, which is rife with that kind of stuff. Oh, sure. Well, and the, one of the things that the government was concerned about when they were first talking about this was, what's the religious reaction going to be on this? And if you go on the net, my God, just type some general stuff in about UFOs, and 90% of the pages you come up with are going to be religious pages, and they're saying, oh, my God, it's the devil come to earth, and see, this passage here says that, and this passage here says that, and it's the devil, and uh, he's here to destroy Jesus in flying saucers. Okay, whatever, man. I don't know what to tell you. If you want to get serious about this and do some research, let's do it. But get the Bible out of it. And if you're going to bring the Bible into it, bring it in seriously. And let's examine it historically, okay? Nice, nice. I guess just to put a bow here on the timeline that we've been talking about, we, we sort of uh, have established that Clinton, of the same vein, I guess you could say, really, uh, of the preceding two presidents, did you see much change in the Bush 42 years or whatever the fuck uh, they're calling him now. <laughs> yes, he went the same direction as his dad, uh, interestingly enough. Uh, what you got was the, the really heavy-duty evil others. You didn't see a whole lot of stuff about UFOs per se. What you saw was the other, the outsider, and it was usually something satanic, uh, something, you know, evil. Yeah. You know, evil, and, and so <laughs> can Jesus, evil, other stuff's evil. Uh, so, yeah, he was kind of going on that angle. There was a movie that came out called They, I think it was, if I remember right, which is just about these horrible things that come to you when you fall asleep and drag you away into another world. Pretty much all the stuff that came out during his administration was like that. There was one in particular, Darkness Falls, which I just loved. That was a fun movie. It bombed. Everyone hated it, except me. Uh, I've got a copy of it. I just love it. I pop it in every now and then and watch it. Uh, in this particular movie... You've got this evil entity called the Tooth Fairy, which their explanation for is she's some woman who was lynched by a town uh, 100 years ago. And ever since, some wraith of her has come back and 
takes kids' teeth. And if you see her, oh, then she just puts the mark on you. And she's going to follow you around for as long as you live until she kills you. She's going to whip you up in the sky, tear you to pieces, do horrible things to you. Jesus. And she wears this mask that looks exactly like a UFO gray. And in fact, in the movie, they call attention to it because he's got like an, an image of a UFO gray and a picture of the mask right next to it. So they're very plainly drawing the connection there. Uh, she comes at night, uh, completely in the darkness, preferably when you're alone, but not always, swoops in out of the dark, drags you away, does horrible things to you, and that's the last anyone ever sees of you again. Period. You die. Mark's on you. You die. Yikes. I'm sure it's way too early, really, to, to start thinking about where it'll go now with the new president, but do you have any any idea or, or theories, I guess you could say, on, on you know what we might see in the future? I am very anxious to find that out for myself, truthfully. I, I have a good feeling about this guy. Um, I'm kind of curious where he's going to go. Uh, they just passed the uh, the legislation with the FDA on cigarettes today. I understand it. I like smoking myself, okay? Uh, I do. I do. <laughs> Straight up. Uh, I'm not an actual smoker, per se, but I like to smoke. And I don't have any problem with smoking. But I've always thought that they should be under control of the FDA. Because uh, the thing that's really killing you is all these horrible additives that they stick in the damn things. Mm -hmm. So take them out. Well, just today they passed this legislation where they literally did absolutely everything that for years I've been wanting them to do. I said, damn, they hit the, the entire laundry list. They got it all. They're not banning it. Uh, they're not destroying it. What they're trying to do is, is actually make it safer, truthfully. Uh, they want to put it under FDA control where it should be so that if you are going to do it, you're at least not going to have arsenic and other stuff tossed in on your cigarettes. That's a great idea. Why the hell didn't we do this a long time ago? Yeah. So having seen that, uh, I have to say I'm impressed. I, uh, I've seen some other things that make me questionable. For instance, he's still toting all the old party lines as far as getting involved in the Middle East and who are going to be bombing and all that. So, yeah, uh, verdict is definitely out, but I'm definitely giving him a chance also. Let's just say he's kind of won me over in some regards. Okay. Look at this. Alien Abductions, a 12-step recovery handbook. This is a joke. Not to people in AAAA. But, Dharma, this is not something you believe in, right? Well, it's not really a subjective thing, Greg. It's science. Dharma, it, it is not science. Come on. I mean, UFOs, those are for people in pickup trucks on dirt roads that... You know, done seed it with their own two eyes. You're listening to Banal of America Audio. Do you really believe that there are little guys like this flying around the planet? Like this? No, of course not. They're in ships. <laughs> Those are weather balloons or, or atmospheric phenomena or, or pie plates on strings. Honey, if you have some evidence you would like to show me, I'd be willing to have an open mind, unlike some people. Okay, so just so that I know what I'm up against, where do you stand on the Easter Bunny? Well, I ain't seen it with my own two eyes, Greg, but how do you explain them chocolate eggs? We have a bunch of movies here that uh, the good folks at the official BOA forum, the USAV.com, uh, submitted to me that uh, came out after the book, and they didn't know they were going to be uh, brought up here during the show, so they'll either be happy about that or mad. I'm not sure yet. Probably <laughs> depending on my take on it. What was that? It sucked. It's my favorite movie, you bastard. But before we get to those, I want to touch on two sort of genres, I guess you could say. First, well, you did sort of talk about this a little bit. Uh, way back earlier, when you were talking about the movie they made of the Bud Hopkins abduction book. Intruders. Right. Just the overall sort of idea or the question is, 
you know, what's your take on these movies that have been made that are based on esoteric books or events? You know, Fire in the Sky, I think they made a communion one. Obviously, Roswell, the movie, not so much the TV series. Um, and I'm sure there's other ones that I'm forgetting. But, uh, you know, there's a sort of different situation there where they don't have to see the information. It's already there. So at that point, they can kind of tinker with the information and reshape the story, if you will. So I guess... Or, yeah, and, or, and it kind of depends on who their source is. For instance, uh, I think he was the president of the Sci-Fi Channel at the time, and I can't think of his name, but he, he was behind pretty much all the programming on the Sci-Fi Channel at the time that I wrote my book, mm -hmm. uh, which was, well, let me think, what, 96, 97, 98, right in there. Yeah. Uh, when all the stuff that you're talking about came out. Dark Skies, for instance. Uh, Dark Skies is a very entertaining show with not a lick of truth in it anywhere. And the information that he came out with for that, he was getting, he said himself that he was getting it from shadowy inside sources, uh, like two or three people who he believed as credible. Uh, they revealed themselves and said, hey, we're the guys on the inside. I'm telling you what actually went down, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he put it into a series, which is laughably wrong in practically every detail that it comes out with. Forget UFOs, it's wrong on everything. Just any single thing that it brings out. So, no, that didn't happen, that didn't happen, that didn't happen. And I don't know where the hell you came up with it. <laughs> if you think everyone is this stupid, or if you just don't do any homework, but you're not paying attention, it's just not remotely credible. Which doesn't mean it isn't entertaining. It was very well produced. Yeah, yeah. It makes you wonder if that was just his way of trying to generate buzz or something like that, or if he was really being lied to. Oh, I'm positive he was being lied to. If he was actually accepting this information from the inside sources, I can tell you who his inside source was. It was William Cooper. I'm positive of it. Uh, because everything that he came out with in his series came straight out of William Cooper. Well, William Cooper's the least believable guy you could ever come up with. Speaking of which, he came to a very odd end. Uh, William Cooper was a one-armed man who worked for the Navy in the Office of Naval Intelligence. Now, he will tell you this in his own Behold the Pale Horse book. Mm -hmm. He claims that since he started blowing the whistle on the evil alien conspiracy and the people on the world that are in, in cahoots with aliens, etc. and so forth, that all of his former buddies are trying to kill him. Well, he says that at one point. At another point, he says he's only worked since he left o the ONI uh, with people in the ONI, <laughs> his, former, <laughs> his former friends. Say, well, where do you hide from him during office hours, man? The broom closet? Uh, which, what am I supposed to believe here? Are they out to kill you or are they hiring you? So I, I just can't believe the guy. Uh, he says he was in a hospital bed at the time that Kennedy was shot, and that he saw it on TV, and he very plainly saw Kennedy's driver turn around and shoot him with a pistol, which they show in Dark Skies, obligingly. But the point is, it never happened. We've got this Zapruder film. It didn't happen. And he couldn't possibly be telling the truth, because nobody saw that on TV the day that he was shot. The TV's blacked out across the country before, that, before the shots were fired. No one saw it. So he's just plainly lying to you. Well, he doesn't do it just on that. He does it on a number of things. And he's just one of those guys that the more you read him, you say, this is shit. I don't know why the hell you're trying to sell me this, but this is shit. Uh, see, I just don't take him seriously. In fact, now and then, when I'm bored, I have his book. He's very smart. He knew that guys like me would buy it anyway for one very simple reason. This thing is worth a million laughs. When you get bored, just open it up at random and read for a few minutes, and you'll laugh if you know anything about any of this stuff. Yeah, it's quite a book. I still get people asking me about it, and I hear about it all the time. It's got a weird underground cult cachet of some kind, probably because he died and everything and all that. It's the way he died. Now, this is one of those things where, do you know how he died? Uh, I've heard about it, but I don't remember it well enough to really speak to it. Well, now, this is the story. And mind you, I don't have everything on the story either. I was getting this at the time it happened off the web, and I mean off of newspapers on the web. Uh, and the story was, 
Bud Hopkins had been threatened by William Cooper. William Cooper was threatening Bud Hopkins' life and apparently following him around. Uh, he'd send him letters, you know, death threat letters and all this type of thing, and law enforcement got involved, obviously. Well, at some point, law enforcement went to arrest William Cooper, or at least to go and talk with him, and I don't know who fired first, <laughs> but bullets were exchanged, and guess who came out the worst for wear? Probably the one-armed guy who couldn't carry quite as many weapons at the same time. Now, what really went down, I could not tell you. I don't know if he was set up. I don't know if he was really a nut. I don't know what the circumstance is. All I know is that this really bizarre guy who wrote this entirely unbelievable book and was in the Office of Naval Intelligence got shot dead. Now, you may read that any way you like, but that's what went down. Yeah, it is uh, quite, a, quite a character and quite a story there. And what about the Fire in the Sky movie? That was a big kind of event at the time uh, when it came out. I've heard all kinds of different, you know, takes on it that, you know, they made it unrealistic and they changed things and, and that kind of stuff and it just makes you wonder, like, why? why? Way changed things. Way changed things. Now, the first part of that movie is actually pretty accurate. Everything up to the abduction itself, pretty much accurate the way that uh, it was told. But Travis Walton never said anything about evil reptilian aliens wearing spacesuits, shrink-wrapping him, and sticking needles in his eye with, you know, partially eaten human remains hanging by, which is what you see in the movie. Not one word of that in Travis Walton. Nothing remotely like that. His experience was completely benign. Nothing horrible happened to him at all. Uh, he, the actual Travis Walton story, his story... He woke up, he was on a slab in the neutral setting that has now become quite familiar. The little gray guys were around him. He freaked. He went, ah, and they all ran away. They ran around a corner or something, and he <laughs> ran the other direction. Well, then he kind of wandered around in this ship, which he described it was fairly empty looking, but there was some machinery in it here and there. And at one point he came across uh, a man and a woman. Uh, they looked rather kind of the ones that are called the Swedes frequently in the reports. Yep. They were blonde, and they were wearing blue spacesuits, pretty much like the spacesuits that we wear with the helmets and the whole nine yards. They never said a word to him. They smiled. Uh, they sort of escorted him around and pointed a few things out. That's happened in a couple of UFO reports also. And then he sort of blacked out again. And the next thing he knew, he was walking down the road. It was a week later, and everyone said, where the hell have you been? My God, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, that's the whole Travis Walton story right there. That's all of it. No needles in the eye, no shrink wrap, no eaten human remains, no spacesuits. In fact, he thought that the greys might be robots and said so. Uh, but none of that's in the movie. What you get in the movie, and Tracy Torme is one of the guys that wrote the screenplay to this movie, Tracy Torme, who also was an executive producer of that movie, was a guy who sat in on a lot of Bud Hopkins' uh, hypnotic regression sessions with actual abductees. Now, where the hell does someone who's been listening to actual abductee stories that have not come out like this, not any of them have come out and said anything like this. But here it is in the movie, and he protests innocence and says, and I'm, you know, I'm not getting in a pissing match with Tracy Torme. I don't know the man, but this is a serious question. How the hell do you put crap like that in a movie where you know that is not true? You know for a fact that that's a straight-up lie. What are you doing sticking that in there and then trying to pretend that you don't know? I know you know. You've sat in on Bud Hopkins' hypno-regression sessions. You're the executive producer of this. Don't tell me you don't have a say in what goes in the script. All right, you want to make it scary so that people will watch it. I understand that. I don't have a problem with that. But hey, <laughs> what are you trying to do, man? Um, and you sort of just planted a seat here for a question just based on what we've established here, what do you think, and I'm starting to agree with you here about the E.T. Greys being aliens, I mean being uh, being robots. What's your take on all these the, the Nordic kind that get reported? 
I think those are the people sending them. Those are the ones that made them. And they're probably not the only ones. Uh, for all we know, they've got as many races out there as we have down here. I have no reason not to believe that. But frequently, the Swedes or the Nordics are the ones that are reported when they're actually seen. If that's actually them, we don't know. But yeah. there seems to be some sort of connection, yes. Okay. Now, the only other uh, little sort of genre I want to talk about, and we don't have to beat this one to death, is just sort of like the kind of ironic thing where, like, every decade, it seems... There's a TV show that's about an alien living in America under the radar and trying to blend in and everything. You get like Mork and Mindy, right? Right, and then you have Alf, and then the the Third yep. Rock from the Sun series. Yep. Which you know, and I never mentioned Third Rock anywhere in my book because I I completely didn't even know about it. That's how far I was off from watching uh, mainline TV at the time. Yeah. I just didn't even know it existed. Then I came across it, and I said, oh, my God, I can't believe I didn't know about this. Have you seen that show? Because I really like oh, it. Oh, sure. Yeah, it's pretty funny. <laughs> it's especially funny when William Shatner comes on. Oh, yeah, yeah, he's great on that. I'm surprised there hasn't been, like, a new – that's been off the air for, like, since almost since the book came out. We need to go out to Hollywood, you and I, and pitch an ALF for the new millennium. <laughs> oh, dude, I've got so many ideas I would love to toss on these guys' desks. Say, why the hell aren't you doing this? What is the matter with you, for God's sake? We like Capricorn 1? Great. You know what? I wouldn't have thought about that if someone hadn't brought it up. Uh, yeah, that thing is so ripe for a remake, I can't tell you. Um, the first one was not that good. I mean, it was fairly entertaining and it was fun, but it really wasn't that good. It needs to be remade. Absolutely. I would love to see that. The only other like genre that has come along since the book came out, and I, I don't know how well it really would apply to your thesis about the education program. It's just like this whole reality TV thing that's that's happened since the year 2000. Do you see any elements of the education program at work in that? I see experiments in influencing public opinion, which you do see when it comes to UFO material, as a matter of fact. I mentioned the the uh, TV shows. They, they seem to air on WGN. You may read into that whatever you will. That just seems to be where they always popped up. Yeah. Uh, Bill Bixby frequently hosted them. There was one that had to do with the, the strawberry ice cream show, as it was derogatorily called, mm -hmm. that brought out the aviary story of the E.T. that survived Roswell, and uh, it was alive for a while, and we learned a few things from it, and it loved strawberry ice cream. Uh, and, of course, you have these shadowy sources with masked uh, voices and hidden faces and all this other type of thing. And it, this goes on for two hours. And Bill Bixby is hosting this thing the entire time. And, and it's all pretty damned outlandish. But what he's doing the entire time that that show is on, because he's got a live audience there. And while all this is going on, before the show starts, he says, well, how many of you believe there might be aliens? And, you know, he's getting some, some sort of response from the audience. And as the show progresses, he's saying, how many of you think there might be aliens? And, of course, the number's increasing. And then it gets to the end, and he literally says, now, how many of you think there might be aliens? Of course, the whole audience, yeah, 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 yeah. So I think these are experiments to, to uh, see how well you can mold public opinion in such an environment. It's a salesman environment. Yeah. And that's largely what reality TV is. Reality TV is nothing new. Do you remember All-Star Wrestling? We still have World Wrestling Federation. Oh, yeah. All-Star Wrestling is as fake as it comes. Come on. <laughs> I know people who still believe it's real, and I laugh at them, <laughs> even, even friends of mine. And uh, they'll actually try and convince me it's real, and say, come off it. Dude, I've seen the camera pull back where there's supposed to be an offense outside. You can see the studio behind them and two guys holding the fence piece up. How could you believe this? <laughs> and it's just transparent. But there are people who do. 
And, and it's, it's just entertainment. It's just staged. They want to see what they can get away with and how many people are going to buy it. Reality TV, very much the same thing. And any reality TV, your audience has to know this. I've been in theater for a long time. I'm not stupid. This is all scripted. They don't hand them an actual script where you memorize lines. They give them a scenario. Uh, you saw the Blair Witch Project, right? Yeah. A form of reality TV. Only they're telling you straight up front, this is not real. We have faked this. But that entire movie was done by scenario. Uh, in that particular case, before they even shot, they said, look, this is what the basic story is. We haven't made it all up ourselves yet. What we want you guys to do is just go from point to point, and each day you're going to pick up a little canister that has whatever we have new in the scenario for you to play, and play it out. Just, you know, act it out among each other. Use your own words and play it out. They even use their own names. The actors use their own names for the character names. Yeah. Okay, well, it can be pretty damned convincing, actually. Uh, and I think the Blair Witch Project, they did do a very good job. There are times where every now and then it might look a little bit phony, but for the most part, they're pretty realistic. Uh, it works pretty well. Scenario acting is not a bad way to go. But in reality TV, that's what you see all the time. They give them a basic scenario. Say, okay, look, you're the couple. Uh, you're going to have a fight at this particular point, uh, break up over whatever, and uh, a couple episodes down the line, we're going to bring it back together again. They prearrange all this shit. <laughs> now, what do you think of the – it's sort of like a mixed reality magazine-style show, but it's sort of like the big talk of uh, the UFO community right now, and that's UFO Hunters. Have you had a chance to check that out and looked into that at all? Is that like Ghost Hunters? Uh, not exactly. It's sort of like a combination. I've only seen a few episodes of it, to be honest with you, so I'm going to give it a rough version here, but it's sort of like – Is it the thing that's on Discovery Channel? I think it's on History Channel. History Channel. Yeah, they, they investigate UFO cases, like famous UFO cases. And, you know, and then they go and sort of like – if you haven't seen it, I mean, there's no <laughs> – And I've heard about it. I've never actually watched it myself. Uh, as soon as you say hunters, I'm automatically thinking ghost hunters, which is as fake as they come. Yeah, yeah. I'm not a big fan of ghost hunters at all. It's uh, kind of lousy. Uh, so. Yeah, it's you know, remotely entertaining if you happen to be in the right mood, but it's it's not remotely credible. Right. Well, that's the annoying part, just that it got so big and everything, and it's like, ugh, why, why are all these people jumping on ghost hunters when, like – there's so much more interesting other stuff out there than running around in the dark, but I guess, you know, <laughs> you're like a teenager. People. Exactly. No one ever lost money making a horror movie, man. You cannot lose money making a horror movie. If you want to make bank, make a horror movie. Even if it bombs, you are going to make money. That's true. Let's talk a little bit about some of these movies that the folks sent in, and, and they cover pretty much, you know, all these years, and, and we won't do all of them, obviously. Uh, we'll, I'll try and stay within the realm of uh, the UFO field and what we've been discussing here in our conversation and and the first one's the starship troopers sure what do you think of that because i kind of liked it a lot and it was interesting in in the way almost kind of how we're just talking about the way they film this stuff a little bit sort of like documentary style it was kind of you know what i think they were really preparing everybody for iraq you had this big desert war we got the surprise attack oh my god the terror attack boom iraq just destroyed my city people i know died you killed my brother i get you back and, you know, everyone's recruiting and running off to join. And, you know, they're, getting everyone, they're getting everyone ready for a desert war in Iraq or Afghanistan. Interesting. Okay. All right. How about Contact? What do you think of that? Contact is kind of a mixed grab bag. Uh, there are some slight differences between the book and the movie. Uh, it's not a bad movie, actually. Carl Sagan, of course, wrote this thing. And speaking of uh, Capricorn 1, what exactly was he trying to tell us? Because what happens in this is uh, one person out of this bunch has a, a an actual abduction experience, and there is no other way to describe that. And they are able to relate it to everyone else. They have met an outside intelligence. They're able to relay it to everyone else. 
Nobody believes them. And before they go out there, in the book, they're given this briefing beforehand saying, you don't talk about this, it's going to stay quiet, yeah, 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 you shut the fuck up. <laughs> and that's, I think, pretty much what happened with the astronauts for the most part. It's a lot of the Capricorn One thing. Say, well, you have to tell everyone, oh, well, you can't do that. Well, we have to. You can't do that. Yeah. <laughs> they're just going to lean on you, man. Uh, they're going to put enough pressure on you. They don't want you to talk about it, you ain't going to talk about it. How about uh, Mission to Mars? Yeah, that's the one with the face on Mars, right? Yeah. yeah. Not a bad movie. Well, it's interesting you brought up Robert Heinlein, because Robert Heinlein was a government physicist, of all things. And uh, Brian De Palma, I don't exactly know what the connection is. I believe he has a, his, his brother, his cousin. He's got someone who's like a government physicist connected in his family. Oh, wow. I cannot give you the particulars on that. This has been relayed to me. And I certainly didn't know it at the time I wrote my book. However, and, and I'm also not a big fan of Brian De Palma. Sorry, Brian. Uh, he made two or three movies that I thought were very good, and the rest of them are... He always does that damn split screen, and it just throws everyone straight out of the action. You can't watch it anymore. Yeah. Uh, but that was not a bad movie. It was over long, and uh, turgid, I think, is the right word. Uh, and it's a special effects were spotty. But I, he was trying to call attention to Mars and a previous civilization being there and the possibility that we might be able to join them, which I think is extremely interesting. Yeah, yeah. Uh, now, obviously, he could just be playing off of, of public perceptions, but I find it interesting that, that it is now becoming that much of a public perception, that people are beginning to accept it. Yeah, that raises the whole idea, you know, that, like, at some point, when does the seating stop? from the insiders, and at what point does it become such, so ingrained into the ethos of the mainstream that you don't know... That no one even questions it anymore, right. Right. It's like, where's the line drawn? Where It's so blurry between, you know, did they get this information from insiders, or is this, you know, something they heard on coast to coast? It's like, you don't really know anymore. Well, the funny thing about that, and bear in mind, I believe this is the case. I believe that civilization did come from Mars, and that there's still people there. However, one can make the case that this is some sort of government conspiracy, and certainly Picknett and Prince did in the Stargate conspiracy. Uh, they think this is all some orchestrated campaign to get everyone to believe this, and it isn't true. Uh, I disagree with them. I think there's something to it, and I do believe it's real. But I understand why they come up with that particular point of view and why they think someone's trying to sell them. They are. Someone is trying to sell them. The question is, is it legitimate or not? Is it real or not? Uh, and that's something that you just have to decide for yourself on the basis of uh, your own research. Yeah, it's really interesting because that one really was richly esoteric and really kind of laid it out there on the table. And, and face on Mars, I mean, we're talking earlier about the moon hoax and how that's the the bastard child of uh, of esoterica. I mean, you know, face on Mars is like right right there next to it almost as far as, you know, theories that, that sort of get shit on all the time by the mainstream. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But then it makes you wonder, like, the ones that get persecuted the most – <laughs> you know, maybe they're the ones that have the most merit to it. Yes and no. It's a really dicey bag. Uh, for instance, um, Jack the Ripper, was he a Mason? That's become so mainstream now that practically everybody accepts it. The actual evidence for it? There is some Masonic evidence at uh, a couple of the murder sites. That's to be admitted, and it can't simply be dismissed. However, there's not a shred of evidence that William Gull, who's usually who they point at, uh, the royal physician going about and doing this, he couldn't have done it. The man had had a stroke before that time. Uh, he was paralyzed on one side of his body. He was in his 70s, and he wasn't strong enough to knife a kitten. He just couldn't <laughs> have done it. There's no way. And the entire uh, fundamental underpinning of this is that there was a royal bastard that was born that was Catholic that the uh, queen couldn't have acknowledged. They could still acknowledge it, or they didn't have to acknowledge it and raise it in secret. There was no reason to go about and commit some sort of murder. Uh, not to mention, I, I do actually have a little bit of difficulty imagining the queen ordering a bunch of private murders like that. Not too much. It is possible. I would not reject it. 
But there's really no evidence to believe any of this. However, uh, Stephen Knight brought it out as a theory back in the 1970s. Uh, I'd read his book. Uh, I forget what the name of it was now, uh, but The Masonic Ripper or something like that. And uh, he laid it out and made it very credible. It was a lot like the Bill Bixby show with strawberry ice cream aliens. Now, how many of you believe? And uh, he does make a convincing case, except when you go back and analyze the particulars, they don't fall together. Which is not to say that there's not some evidence there that could link it to someone who knew something about masonry. So is it real or is it not? I can't tell you. All I can tell you is there is some evidence there. All right. Now, another movie that uh, they mentioned here on the forum is The Fifth Element. I've only seen parts of that, so I can't speak to it too well. But uh, there are a lot of esoteric themes in it, I presume. Well, the the one in particular, uh, I just love the movie, first off. Uh, Despite any esoteric, I just love the movie. Right at the beginning of the movie, you have this particular monk, I guess you could say, uh, Ian Holm, who is aware... Uh, He's working for a secret brotherhood, basically, and the secret brotherhood obviously stretches all the way back to ancient Egypt because that's where he encounters them. That's where he goes to talk to them. They're underground in Egypt, and the race that he's talking to down there very much look like robots. I mean, they're mechanical, and they talk like this. (laughs) I mean, they're robots, but he's in their brotherhood, and he's carrying on the secret tradition, so to speak. So in that sense, yes, there's kind of an esoteric alien connection, if you will, stretching back to ancient Egypt, seated in there. Yeah, it all sort of comes together uh, the more you think about it. Now, what about Battlefield Earth? I know it's based on the uh, <laughs> based on that uh, L. Ron, L. Ron Hubbard, Hubbard stuff, and it's really kind of weird. You almost wonder if this is like a nine type situation that really took off uh, the whole L. Ron Hubbard thing, because I mean they're they're intense with the way they are. I guess I don't want to. L. Ron Hubbard is a major can of worms. L. Ron Hubbard was mixed up with Aleister Crowley and uh, Jack Parsons, uh, who created the Jet Propulsion Lab, Caltech. And by the way, the rocket fuel that took us to the moon, whether it was manned or not, the rocket fuel that took us to the moon came from ancient alchemical formulas. That is not a secret. It just isn't advertised. Uh, and that was Jack Parsons that was coming up with that stuff. And here he is mixed up with the OTO and Aleister Crowley, and L. Ron Hubbard jumps into the mix. L. Ron Hubbard had been in naval intelligence. Uh, the story goes that someone bet him that he couldn't create a religion, or he said he could create a religion, or something like that. And, well, here we have it. Now, I've just made all kinds of enemies, and probably even more friends. Uh, <laughs> I still like Tom Cruise movies. i got nothing against you, Tom. Uh, I just watched The Last Samurai. Damn, that was good. Uh, so, you know, not trying to start a fight with anybody. I don't believe it. I think it's all crap. But uh, there's old Rod Hubbard mixed in the middle of all this. What I do find interesting, when uh, the book came out, and it's not a very good book. I haven't read it. I just read bits and pieces of it. It's very badly written. That's purely an aesthetic view. What's his name now? John Travolta, you know, the other big Scientologist. I love this book. I have to do this book. Uh, he's just madly in love with this book. This is his life's dream. It is his ambition from the moment he reads this book to produce it as a movie. What is it, 50, 60 million dollars later, and I think 15 years or so later, this is the result. I can't believe that anyone who was seriously trying to do something well could come up with this. I don't know what went wrong, but every single thing in it is is laughable beyond words. Mind you, I love that movie. That is one of my favorite movies to plug in the DVD player and just laugh. You want to have a bad movie night? 
there's a classic choice. That and Ghosts of Mars. Put those two as a double feature. Well, I don't know. That might be cruel and unusual punishment. <laughs> uh, but if you watch them on separate nights, I have this, this is like a party game. It's sort of an informal poll I've had going. Which movie is worse? Ghosts of Mars, Battlefield Earth. And the general consensus is, you know, it's not apples and oranges, but it's just too close to call. We'll talk a little bit about Ghost of Mars, because uh, you said kind of that, that uh, it was an attempt to do the third movie of the Nigel Neal Mass yes. series. Well, John Carpenter, and this is another one of those, John Carpenter, I love most of your movies. This is definitely not one of them. Very entertaining, but uh, boy, way off, man. <laughs> it's just awful. He is a big fan of Nigel Neal, and he was especially a fan of Five Million Years to Earth, which was the one we talked about with uh, Mars and Professor Quatermass discovering them landing here and all of that, yeah. the ancient Martians story. Mm -hmm. He loves that. He has wanted to remake that for ages. Well, ultimately, he didn't end up remaking that. What he ended up making was Ghosts of Mars and, uh, what was that one, Prince of Darkness. Uh, Prince of Darkness was kind of based on Nigel Neal-type stuff. He doesn't do the Nigel Neal-type stuff really well. Probably not the best area for him. Although, I have to admit, I kind of enjoy Prince of Darkness. It's fun. I enjoy Ghost of Mars for what it is. And, uh, and what is Ghost of Mars? Because I don't even think I've seen it. So uh, I guess talk a little bit about it and what the esoteric messages that uh, you know might be in there or at least attempts it at that kind of Well, thing. first off, it is entertaining. And it is worth watching so long as, well, you're not going to have to be told it's a bad movie. You'll figure that out on your own. But it's an extremely <laughs> handsomely produced bad movie. Uh, it's got a nice budget to it. It's got a gorgeous look. You could take any still from that movie, hang it on your wall, and be proud, just like The Shining. But, just like The Shining, it's a piece of crap if you put it all together and watch it. The story behind this, uh, removing multiple idiocies that have no reason to be there, but the basic story is that we're on Mars. Someone opened up a mine on Mars. There was a civilization there. The evil green gas comes up from Mars, people breathe it, now they are Martians. They have become infected by Martians, and they are now basically Martians themselves. They then become Uga Chaka zombies. Uh, that's one of my favorite things, because literally, they're standing there with these spears, they start painting themselves up like Aborigines. Don't ask me why. Do not ask logic in this movie anywhere. It does not exist. There's a hot air balloon on Mars. Why? There's a matriarchy on Mars. Why? None of this stuff makes sense. Anyway, they become Ugachaka zombies. They paint themselves up in this aboriginal stuff, and they've got spears. They went, Ugachaka, I'm, I'm serious. They're actually doing this. Now, I think Carpenter probably did that on purpose, just as a, a sort of a homage to see who was actually paying attention. So I'm not going to knock that one too much, but it was fun. Uh, and they attack everyone who isn't like them, just like um, in Five Million Years to Earth. You got half of the people who become infected by Martians and become Martians, and the other half who are now their enemies and must be killed. Well, the explanation for this in the movie, this would not have been a bad movie if it had just been done right. The explanation for this is that as a planetary defense system, the Martians left this stuff behind. So if there were ever any invaders, uh, the Martians could repel them in exactly this fashion. You are strangers on our planet. You are not supposed to be here. Die, motherfuckers. <laughs> not a bad plot, really. Could work pretty well. All right, uh, I'm going to skip around here a little bit. What about signs, that whole thing with the uh, crop circles? You don't see too many crop circles pop up in movies, but I do think that was sort of like an alien movie uh, sign. Oh, very much so, yeah. It, you know, it was sort of well-intentioned War of the Worlds homage. I kind of like it. It's entertaining. Uh, certainly its fundamental premise was absurd, and they made fun of it in Scary Movie where they asked the same thing that everyone in the audience did, which is they can travel light years to another planet, but they can't get through a wooden door. 
Yeah. There's something wrong with this. Plus, uh, I, well, they've probably all seen it by now anyway. For those of you who don't want to know how the movie ends, tune out for a few seconds. Uh, obviously, you got a bunch of aliens who come to Earth, and what's their mortal weakness? Water! So the first place I would go is a planet made of it. Exactly, yeah. I'm going to jump around a little bit chronologically, but what about uh, War of the Worlds, the remake? I mean, we talked about the original War of the Worlds, and it's like... Well, I, I just praised Tom Cruise, whose religion I do not believe in. I just praised Tom Cruise in The Last Samurai. Uh, i got to say, War of the Worlds, not so good. Uh, I, I understand what they were trying to do. The tripods? Wow! Those were cool. Worth the price of admission just to see the Martian tripods. And it's not exactly unfaithful to the book. Um, just different aspects of the book than usually come out in, in that story. It's okay. I wasn't that crazy about it. I think they were... You'll notice they didn't call the Martians in that. They're just aliens. Oh, okay, yeah. I, they I, actually removed the whole Mars thing from it, which I thought was odd. Yeah, that is interesting. Well, maybe they're trying to condition people to be more Mars-friendly. <laughs> I'm sort of curious about that myself. And the funny thing is, if you want to pick classic Martians, I mean, classic bad guys, you can always go to Nazis. Nazis never fall out of favor for bad guys. We need bad guys. What are we going to do? Nazis! Okay, drag them out. <laughs> They're perennial. You can never lose with the Nazis. You want that they dress well. they got the sharp outfits. They're horrible. they got the best-looking weapons. They're clean and precise and evil. They, everyone hates them. So you can always trot the Nazis out, although they're, they're starting to get a little tread-worn, I have to say. Uh, and like Spielberg, who never tires of Nazis, I wonder why. He keeps dragging them out, and uh, then we drag out uh, the next big threat with the new Indiana Jones thing, speaking of aliens. And uh, now it's the Russians, of course. Yeah, yeah. And Martians fit right in there. But the funny thing in the Indiana Jones thing, they set it all up, uh, and they were plainly going for the ancient astronauts and aliens and all that, and they set up Mars completely, and then just, like, punted it straight out of the field. Said, nope, plainly another dimension. No planets involved at all. They just came from the space between spaces. What are you, nuts? This movie would have been good if you'd gone ahead and played it out full. <laughs> There's a lot here, other movies that are sort of esoteric, but we're going to try and stay in the UFO realm. So I guess I'll just ask you, of the, you know, post-97, after the book came out, up until today, other than the movies we've talked about, have there been movies, you know, that you've seen where this light bulb goes off in your head where you're like, you know, that's Hollywood versus the aliens. There's, there's something going on here with this flick. Oh, absolutely. Well, there's one in particular, actually. It's Hellboy, because uh, there's a line in there that practically came from the very... Uh, end of the first section of my first book, and I was quite pleased, I have to admit. There's a spot, I don't want to spoil things for people that haven't seen them yet. Uh, there's a spot in there where Professor Broom, the, the whole thing behind Hellboy, it's a lot like Men in Black. Yeah. You've got this secret occult uh, business in the background that knows a lot of stuff that the rest of the public doesn't, because they're the guys that study that, and they go out and deal with it. Well, in this Nazi occult conspiracy, with the Russians, Rasputin gets dragged in too. Entirely inaccurate, but my is it entertaining and very well performed. There's this one evil Nazi German bad guy who is just indestructible. He's bulletproof, and he will rip the shit out of you if you come anywhere near him. And he's pretty much undead. No one can figure out what the hell he is. <laughs> At one point, Professor Broom gets a hold of him, and he's doing an autopsy on him. And the guy's pretty much a zombie. Uh, he's a robot for all practical intents and purposes. He's got mechanical parts. And he's analyzing it, and he says, 
Well, I found the puppet. Now, where's the puppet master? And that's when he meets Rasputin. Well, that's exactly the line I ended my uh, the first section of my book with, so I was quite pleased. <laughs> All right, so Hellboy is one that you think was... Uh... Oh, yeah, I loved Hellboy. I actually didn't like the second one. I thought the second one was just, eh. Although it kind of fits into the same territory, what you're dealing with is, you know, the, the elven race, quote-unquote. Anytime you're dealing with some other race, and they're sort of human-like, and there's a lot of history that they had with the human race, uh, there's some sort of an esoteric connection there, yes. You'll find that going back all the way in esoteric brotherhoods. Absolutely, yeah. Now, what about uh, Taken, the Spielberg miniseries? I thought that was one of the best UFO series, I guess. It was sort of like just a one-off thing. I really enjoyed it quite a bit. Have you seen it, and what do you think of it? Well, that one, I whip out my sword, now we attack. No, actually, I thought it was epic junk. I understand why it was appealing. Uh, I know a lot of people that watched it and kind of got sucked into it. Uh, but I, basically, I thought it was junk, except uh, the one thing that I thought it portrayed very well um, was the behind-the-scenes bit with uh, the government. Yeah. And you had basically the George Bush character. They're very plainly setting him up to be that, uh, who's been sitting on all this information for a very long time and trying to keep it secret because that's where you get your power from. That much of it I thought was actually fairly accurate, and I will admit there were some very good performances in it. Uh, it was extremely handsomely produced, no question. Um, the performers were very appealing, uh, and some interesting ones put in there that most people don't see very often. Uh, what's her name? Heather from uh, Blair Witch was one of them. Emily Birdle. How many people in the audience know who Emily Birdle is? Well, she was very appealing in that, and there were lots of other people, too. It was kind of interesting in that regard. The problem with it was nothing in it really made sense. It's trying to suck you in and get some sort of emotional response out of you and give the impression that there's some big, epic, overarching thing. But there's absolutely nothing tied together with anything, and nothing really makes sense at the end of the day. All that happens is, well, uh, a couple of people got abducted, uh, they had sex in space, and they had a typical Steven Spielberg wonder child. How you're going to respond to that is going to depend on how well you respond to Steven Spielberg wonder children. If you <laughs> like Steven Spielberg wonder children, you're going to love it. If you don't like Steven Spielberg wonder children or you're simply tired of them, then you're probably not going to like it too much. Uh, they've gotten a little bit threadbare for me. Let me see. Any other stuff you want to talk about as far as TV shows, movies? Uh, I was going to mention Lost here. What do you think of that? Yeah, I know you're kind of kind of on the on the Lost bandwagon like me. Oh, yes. Lost is unquestionably tied into this. I'm dying to see how they want to tie it in. But there are all kinds of elements that are tied into it. First off, you have people who are abducted, literally. Not only have they disappeared from the world and then reappear at some point, but some of them are abducted on the island. Yeah. Now, they are abducted for purposes of reproduction, specifically. The people who are abducting them are nefarious and shadowy and do not reveal their motives. They are technologically advanced, more technologically advanced than us, or than we recognize currently. The island itself is some kind of a ship. It moves. It is mechanical. This much has now been established. It is also definitely connected to ancient Egypt. They just established that at the end of this last season. Uh, we'd already seen the Egyptian statue a couple of times. But now uh, they fall underground, and there's this whole Egyptian temple under there, uh, and the monster, as they call it, is attached to that, that smoke thing. Yeah. The yeah. nanobots, as I like to call them. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, that's the, that's the prevailing theory. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how they, they tie it all up, because then we'll be able to really take a look at it and, and connect all these dots and stuff. Oh, yeah. Well, they're throwing the time travel card in. Time travel is always entertaining for drama. I never buy it. 
but it, it makes for entertaining drama sometimes. They're doing yeah. a good job with it. I'm going to give them credit on that. Lost is one of those shows, it immediately hooks you, no matter where you start watching it. It will also definitely lose you at some point. Uh, I gave up on it for like a couple of years almost entirely. I would sort of occasionally go back and see what was going on or have people catch me up on it. And then, recognizing that it's doing that to some of its audience, they'll finally throw a bone out for people like me that need something they can chew on. And once they threw the time travel thing out, I said, all right, now i got a bone at least I can chew on. We're, we're pointed <laughs> in a direction. Yeah. Well, it's a great show. I look forward to uh, seeing how it wraps up. And we'll have to have you back towards the end of next year when it's all done. Maybe that'll be something we can... <laughs> really? Oh, I would love to. Are you kidding? I can't wait. You know, I, I will be sorry when Lost is done just because it'll be done. Although I swear to God, if they do this to me, I will hate them forever. I've been saying since I started watching this, and, and that's why I stopped watching for a while, I said, I just know they're going to drag me through all seven years of this, or however long it is, and we'll get to the very last episode, and I'm going to get pissed off, and I'm going to throw a brick through my TV screen. And they better not do that to me. If they've tossed some really stupid-ass thing on the end there, I will never forgive them. Yeah, yeah, that's the that's the big fear from a lot of people about that show, you know, that, well, I think they're almost kind of trying to, trying to like, uh, diffuse that at the end of this season, because everyone's kind of, like, if worried that they're going to start the next season with them landing in L.A. and somehow the bomb going off changed the timeline and everything else. So we'll we'll see maybe if they, like, sort of find a way to maneuver around that. But They do fall into epic cheat category. The epic cheat is you cannot trust anything you see here. Oh, yeah. Uh, this week, this person died. Oh, no, wait. They're still alive because the special magic of the Vip Devam de Vidley Val science fiction. Boom! Spock is really not dead. He has been reanimated. Oh. Uh, so you can always do the epic cheat. And Absolutely. they way overplayed the epic cheat card. However, they are still a very good show. Exactly, yeah. Well, the uh, the embodiment of that is uh, is Benjamin Linus, because he'll, oh, yeah. he'll say something, and, <laughs> you know, you'll base you'll base your knowledge on that for, like, five episodes. Then he'll just be, like, all deadpan, you know, I was lying. And it's like, what? Well, I, I, don't, care how, I don't care how well they think they've thought this out. I'm willing to bet that if you take current episodes and then go back and watch some, like, first and second season episodes, you're going to come up with all kinds of questions saying, hey, wait a minute. Oh, yeah. And that it's not going to jive. Yeah. I also think, I, I don't care how well they've planned this out, I think they're making a lot of this up as they go along. Yeah, I like to think that they kind of have an idea how it was going to end and then sort of work their way around to that. But I agree with what you're saying, that, that there are some things that, like, the whole thing with Saeed and shooting Ben, and there was never sort of any indication that that had happened when they originally met in the first place. Well, and none of these people communicate with each other. Oh, I know. That's my pet peeve about the show. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it makes no sense. If you were actually in a circumstance like this, you always come up with one of the things... You can't do that. Why not? You just can't. Tell me why. I can't. Yes, you can. So, of course, I'm going to shoot the guy. Now you've done it. And then you find out. So, well, why did you just tell the guy, asshole? Yeah. This is ridiculous. Yeah, it is, uh, it is a great show. I do love it. Any other movies or TV shows that are really, uh, you know, getting you going right now as far as, you know, the whole Hollywood versus the aliens thesis? Are you kidding? The second we're done, 50 of them will pop into my head. <laughs> The second we're done. I know. Like, off I know. the top of my head right now, no, because we're just, like, shooting the shed. Exactly, yeah. Well, we've covered so much stuff. It's it's amazing. Um, I, th I think I'll wrap it up here. What do you think? Sure, that's fine. Okay. Yeah, we got two hours. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Look at that. Damn, time flies. Now, we, we kind of talked a little bit about how, you know, you sort of have this idea about the pirates and the masons and everything, and, and pirates mm -hmm. in general sort of ruminating um, 
I, I have a very good view of pirates, just by the way. That's <laughs> that's good to know, I guess. I look um, at them as Robin Hoods of the sea, not as an you know a naval biker gang. Well, what about contemporary pirates, though? Well, contemporary pirates are not the Brethren of the Coast, no. Yeah, yeah. The Brethren of the Coast were a particular era in history, and they were a particular bunch of people with a particular agenda and politics. And uh, I like them a lot. Is there anything like that you're working on that you might want people to know about, or or we, should we just kind of wait wait to see what's going to come up next from Bruce Rocks? I wish I could say yes. Uh, people have asked me before. They say, well, why don't you write more books on this subject? Because I covered it. And I think I pretty well answered everything in the two books that I did write. I could do what Zechariah Sitchin does and just keep rewriting the same thing over and over again, changing a little bit here and there. But uh, it's pretty well covered. Sounds good. Yeah, well, I mean, like I said, unless you did like an extra chapter here on the end of Hollywood vs. the Aliens, I mean, it would be tough to revisit that whole territory anyway. So. And, and I wouldn't mind doing that, which uh, it just won't happen because my publisher would consider it uh, a waste of time because it doesn't sell. It's unfortunate. All right, Bruce, we've reached the end of our journey here, and I, I just can't thank you enough. And, and just to sort of pull the curtain back a little bit for the folks who are listening at home, Bruce has just been an amazingly generous guy here with his time for us. Literally, we started this interview four weeks ago and <laughs> have been taping two-hour installments over the last three weeks. And, you know, every time we'd come to the end of the two-hour installment, we'd still have pages of, of notes to go over. And Bruce would say, all right, how about next week, same time? And we did it. And it's, it's almost – you almost turn into like <laughs> like my weekly sessions here. <laughs> it's a coffee clutch. By the way, my, my friends and I, we do this all the time. Uh, I mean, you know, we go out for coffee. We're just hanging out. It's, it's exactly like what we're doing here. We're just sitting and chatting and, you know, about whatever. Exactly, yeah. Well, that's kind of the whole style of the show. You know, it's supposed to be just a, a conversation amongst friends over the phone. And, you know, there's just <laughs> thousands of people that turn out to <laughs> end up listening. That's right. <laughs> uh, I mean, I'm glad they're interested in listening to my ramblings. <laughs> they're going to they're gonna be blown away. But, you know, folks, there's so many people out there in the esoteric world that are writing great books and stuff. And, and, and you know, it's unfortunate in a way that, that we we only have the two awesome books from Bruce. I wish I wish we had more from you because the the uh, Hollywood vs. the Aliens is amazing, and I'm really looking forward to reading Architects. And I'm obviously going to be talking to you again, I'm sure, because well, I hope so. I had too much fun. Uh, yeah, we just had so much fun, and, and like I said, folks, uh, you know, just amazingly generous with his time. A lot of folks out there, you know, they're busy. Obviously, Bruce is fucking busy too. And they don't want to give you as much time as, as as you get sometimes, but Bruce has just been just over-the-top generous with his time, and I immensely appreciate it. And I hope the listeners do, too, because, you know, you've really gone above and beyond what any of our guests have ever done before as far as, you know, hey, well, we'll talk until you're ready to, ready to uh, wrap it up. We'll talk until we've covered everything. And that, that's been his attitude this whole time. And, and the result is just this amazing, damn near close to six-hour interview that, that we're going to bill as the Bruce Rucks trilogy and, <laughs> and, and break it out over three installments here uh, over the course of, of the next few weeks. Bruce, you know, I started out having read your book and was just like, you know, saucer-eyed, no pun intended, just a huge fan. And over the course of the last four weeks have been, you know, with the risk of going overboard here saying, you know, I feel like we've become pretty good friends talking every oh, week here. Yeah, you're right. And, uh, you know, and, and so I really, uh, I'm really happy to have, to have connected with you in this way. And I hope this is just the beginning of, of a, a long line of, uh, 
you know, working together and, and being friends here well into the future because I've really enjoyed meeting you virtually, I guess you could say. Yeah. And yes. befriending you. <laughs> we have virtually met now. <laughs> and, and befriending you over these over these uh, past four weeks. So, you know, in summation, Bruce, I can't thank you enough. Folks, the book is Hollywood vs. the Aliens. We just talked for six hours, but there's so much more there that we didn't get to that is worthy of discussion. And you got to go out and pick up this book, and you got to read it. It's the perfect summertime reading book, actually, because you know you'll just hunt and peck at it till you till you're through with the book. It's amazing, and I highly recommend it. And again, Bruce, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show. Decidedly, my pleasure. That does it for this week's edition of BOA Audio Season Four and the Rux Trilogy. You already heard me gush endlessly just now to Bruce about how amazingly generous he was with his time. Let me just once again thank him for rearranging his schedule for us so that we could tape as much as possible. And in the end, it resulted in one of the landmark interviews of this series and program in general. You will definitely be hearing from Bruce Rucks in Season 5, talking about Architects of the Underworld. I can almost guarantee that. So now is the perfect time to go out and grab both of Bruce's books, Architects of the Underworld, and the one you've just heard us spend the last six hours talking about Hollywood versus the Aliens. Both of those books are available at Amazon.com, and many of them are used books, so you can get them for pretty cheap. You definitely want to go there, check it out, go to Amazon.com, punch in Bruce Rucks, get them, read them this summer, and you'll be ready for when Bruce Rucks returns to BOA Audio. And now, of course, the next segment is BOA Audio listener feedback. Before we dive into the emails, let's do a little double update. First of all, no word from William Zabel. I've been so busy that I really haven't tried to contact him since I called him last week and left the message. Obviously, no return call from William, no return emails, and I believe the website is still down. So we're just going to have to have him elevated at orange level of concern for a while until we eventually hear from Bill Zabel, but if I was a betting man, I'd say he's just gone off the grid for a little while, and we'll be hearing from him eventually. I'm not too concerned yet. Also wanted to mention that we heard from last week's email correspondent, Mag, and she really enjoyed my response to her email about my foul language. If you missed that, you definitely want to go back and listen to the end of last week's program where Mag laid the smackdown on me for my at times foul language. Hilarious stuff. Glad you enjoyed the response, Mag. Give my best to your brood. All right, now let's dive into the BOA Audio listener feedback mailbag. We got two emails here, one super short, one rather long. So we'll just get cooking here with the first email. It comes from Jeff, no hometown listed, but he is, I believe, from somewhere in the UK based on his email address, and he may even be from Wales, home of BOA's own Richard Thomas. But here's what Jeff has to say. Love the show and all that, and follow your things on Twitter. Would you consider a show on UFO activity and the famous police UFO helicopter chase in South Wales and the Breton UFO crash? Respect and take care, Jeff. Well, Jeff, we will definitely be going more international next season. I can't make any guarantees here about season four because we only got three episodes left after tonight, and then I'm going to take a much-needed respite from the show, our annual summer vacation. I'll be back, of course, in the fall. We'll worry about that in a few weeks. So we're already sort of in the midst of wrapping up season four here, but I will definitely dig into 
this UFO activity in Wales, the helicopter chase in South Wales, the Breton UFO crash. Stay tuned, Jeff, and if and when we get this all lined up talking about these subjects, you'll be the first to know. I'll shoot you an email, and uh, you can look forward to hearing that on the program. Email number two is a bit of a long one. It comes from William. No hometown listed, just William. Here's what he has to say. First, let me say thanks for your show. I check out every new episode. I've sampled all sorts of podcasts of the paranormal, the strange, etc., and yours is at the very top. I've downloaded most of the episodes from all four seasons and have even seen fit to make a small donation. The overall quality of your shows, including variety and your interview skills, is excellent. Just one small, hopefully constructive, bit of criticism. Or perhaps you could just say this is a personal preference of mine. Occasionally you'll spend a bit too much time discussing the subject of an issue rather than the issue itself. Example, when the next show is going to be about, say, ghost hunting, I'll think, ooh, fun, lots of scary, spooky tales. But then we'll spend most of the time talking about the subject of ghost hunting, the history of ghost hunting, the various personalities involved in ghost hunting, the projects our ghost hunting guest is planning, etc., but very little talk about otherworldly entities. Of course, you need to lay some groundwork with the guest to set up the interview properly, but from my point of view, I'd rather hear a few cool, scary stories or incidents rather than an extensive overview of the subject of ghost hunting. Again, though, the quality of your shows is excellent, and I look forward to each new episode, but I thought I'd let you know one listener's preference in the spirit of goodwill. Thanks, William. First of all, William, thank you for the donation. That is hugely appreciated. All donations are really helpful to the program and the BOA franchise as a whole. I want to thank you for that before we even get into the content of your email. Second, I want to thank you for the constructive criticism. I really appreciate it. You could have written me a very snarky email pretty much saying what you're saying now but in a rude way, but you didn't do that because you're a cool guy and I appreciate that. Now on to the subject really at hand, the meat of the issue here. As you say, the discussing of the subject of an issue rather than the issue itself. I guess really it comes down to kind of what I'm more interested in and what I feel really is oversaturated on other programs. You know, we don't like to do a lot of UFO stories or Bigfoot sighting stories. I think it's just stories in general. I feel like, you know, once you've heard one story, you've heard them all. But that's not to say that if there are some good stories in a guest's book, I won't have them recount that, like we did with Jason Offit and his Shadow People book a few weeks ago. You know, he told us a bunch of stories from the book, and we talked about the world of Shadow People in general. But I think I see what you're trying to say here, William. You know, you want a little more stories in there. You want some spooky tales and not just sort of discuss the meta-level issues behind the subject. And I'll keep that in mind when I'm taping future editions of the program. This is the kind of thing that I want to hear from the listeners about. If they want to hear more of one thing and less of something else, or if they want us to do a different style of question or something like that, just let me know. That's why I'd rather know that than have someone say, but all sucks, his show stinks, because he doesn't do the show the way I want him to. You know, when you can just as easily write to me, and I'll take your constructive criticism into mind when I proceed forward with future interviews on the program. That's kind of how the whole operation works. I can't read the minds of my listeners, so I rely on you to tell me, you know, maybe where we might have gone off track or 
what you'd like to see us dig into in the future. So, William, you're actually doing the show and the other listeners a huge service here by sharing your take on how you'd like to see us navigate some of these interviews. Of course, if other listeners are hearing this and they disagree and they kind of like different aspects of the way we do things, let me know, write to me, and, you know, we'll take that into account as well. I want to satisfy all the great BOA Audio listeners. You guys are the best. You are what makes the whole show run. So when I hear criticism like last week, Mag saying I swore too much, Mag's going to flip her lid when she hears this week's edition of the show, because I was listening to it earlier, and we both swear quite a bit, Bruce and I, (laughs) here in Volume 3, but that's beside the point. I want to hear from the listeners, no matter what you have to say, because you shape the program and you help us evolve. So thank you for writing in, William. Thanks for writing in, Jeff, as well. You guys are awesome. I appreciate the feedback, positive, negative suggestions. I want to hear from the BOA Audio listeners. Jeff and William stepped up to the plate are you going to step up too? There's three methods mainly to get a hold of me. There's other methods too, of course, but these are the three main ones. You can write to boaaudio at hotmail.com. Second, you go to Banal of America and you click the contact button. It's all over the place on the website. And the third method is to join up at the official BOA forum, theusofe.com, T-H-E-U-S-O-F-E.com. Those are the three methods, email, contact button, forum, any of those. Put your correspondence into my hands for a future edition of BOA Audio listener feedback. Up next, you know what comes next. It is the thanks portion of the show. Let's go through the list of the esteemed and infamous BOA staff. Leslie, Chiron, R. Lee, Joe V., Tina Senna, Rochelle Hawks, Richard Thomas, Lasha Seniuk, and A.M. Murphy. Producing top-notch reading material week in and week out. They are amazing, and they've got some awesome stuff at the website already posted as I speak. Let's go through what was posted this past week since you last heard from me. First, A.M. Murphy checked in last Wednesday with her bi-weekly column, Not Always So. And this time around, the title was The Rise of the Androgen. Talking all about gender switches and how it is sort of indicative of this future world we're living in and trying to cast an eye towards the future and see what the world's going to be like as the gender lines get blurred. Fascinating stuff from A.M. Murphy. Definitely cutting-edge material there from her, and I highly recommend you folks check that one out. Coming at you from a whole another sphere of esoterica, Regan Lee checked in this past Monday with her column, Trickster's Realm, this time around titled Crop Circles, There Should Be Joy, a really thorough piece about crop circles and a real dig into what they might be all about. Highly recommend that one as well. Regan Lee is an emerging star in the online esoteric world, and if you haven't been reading her stuff, not just at BOA, but at her blog as well, you're really missing out. Regan Lee is definitely one to watch in the world of online esoterica and beyond. Speaking of which, another established star in the world of online paranormal scene, Leslie, longtime BOA writer and the woman behind The Debris Field, one of the most popular news sites on the internet for paranormal news. She, of course, writes every week for BOA. She is the Iron Woman of the website. And this time around, her column, Grey Matters, was titled Dulce On My Mind, talking all about the Dulce base. Leslie's been really digging into Dulce over the last month or so. It is, of course, the perennial stalwart 
of ufology, the rumors of the Dulce underground base. Leslie talks all about the whole Dulce mythos in Dulce on my mind. That is Gray Matters at BOA. Check that one out. We just posted it on Tuesday. So it's A.M. Murphy's Not Always So with The Rise of the Androgen, Regan Lee's Trickster's Realm with Crop Circles, There Should Be Joy, and Leslie's Gray Matters with Dulce on My Mind. Those three are at BOA. They're fresh since the last time you heard from me. Go on over there and check it out. We say it every week, but it is the truth, my friends. If you're only listening to Been All of America Audio and you're not reading the columns at BOA, you're only getting half the story, as we just noted. Androgens, crop circles, dulce base, three different subjects we have not yet discussed on BOA Audio, to the best of my knowledge, but they're being investigated and examined at Ben All of America. So get on over to the website and check those out. BenAllofAmerica.com. Make it a part of your everyday search for esoteric news and opinion. And if this is the first time you're hearing the show, the URL for the website, of course, is www.binnallofamerica.com. All one word, been all of America. It's donation time, my friends. I've literally got my hand out here in the air. Could you make a donation? Would you make a donation? I would hugely appreciate it if you could and if you would. I know some folks simply can't, and that's cool. Times are tough right now. The financial crisis is ongoing and repulsive, to be quite honest, and I'm hoping that it'll turn around quite soon. And I know that a lot of folks just can't dig deep right now and make a donation. But there are certainly some folks who are doing okay. They're hunkered down. They're going to make it through the new depression, and they're hanging in there. So to those folks, we turn and ask them to make donations. How do you do that? Go to Banal of America. Click the PayPal button. That'll go to PayPal. They have all this different stuff. They'll help you through how to do it. It's quite simple, and that's the end of the story. You make a donation. No donation is too small, and all donations go towards Benal of America and BOA Audio, keeping us up and running, commercial-free, and freely available to all of our great listeners and readers the world over. Next week on the program, we have a really cool episode for you going almost in a completely different direction from what we've been talking about the last three weeks. Our guest is one of the breakout stars in Esoterica over the last year, Pastor Robin Swope, better known to the esoteric world as the Paranormal Pastor, an amazing writer and tremendous researcher putting out some awesome material at his blog, The Paranormal Pastor. He's coming to BOA next week to discuss his research and his writings at the Paranormal Pastor blog. We're going to cover a myriad of esoteric topics, including strange paranormal stories shared by missionaries who worked in Africa, the potential dangers of weekend warrior ghost hunters and their flirtation with evil forces, what the Bible really says about ghosts, UFOs, and crypto beasts, phone calls from the dead and soul pillars, the esoteric powers once associated with birthmarks, ghost stories from his days working at a haunted ambulance bay, plus, of course, tons and tons more. As you just heard, a whole gamut of different esoteric genres there in next week's conversation with Pastor Robin Swope, the paranormal pastor. That's next week on BOA Audio. Hope you all come on back and check that one out. And on that note, we close the book here on another edition of BOA Audio. Once again, enormous thanks to Bruce Rocks. He is the man. Looking forward to talking to him again numerous times this summer and eventually on BOA Audio Season 5. 
and of course the enduring thanks as always to the tremendous BOA Audio listeners. You folks are the best. You are the fuel that makes the machine run. Without the listeners, this show would be nothing. I know that better than anybody, and I thank you for your continued support of the program and for making BOA Audio a part of your esoteric audio playlist. Until next time, this is Tim Benall, thanking you for listening and signing off.